I hate those introductions on podcasts, but basically, I had a platform with some positive feedback, right? Um, and so, I've just been putting it off because I've been thinking a lot about, you know, when do you, when is the right time to express your opinion publicly, right? Right. Uh, well, that's something I think about at least, you know, because most of the time, if I don't know enough to where I feel confident to like tell people like, yes, this is true. And I know so because I've done the research, then I won't really speak about it. You know, I or, might be or, like, Oh, I heard that. Or they can just be like, Oh, but you read it online. So it's fake news. You know, that's the thing is everyone can even, even if what you read was factual, people can be like, yeah, but that it's on the internet. You know, you can't, well, that's what it. I was talking about with, uh, with Evan the other day, you know, um, is he was like, Oh dude, Fox is biased. And I'm like, have you ever watched it? And he said, no. Yeah, exactly. What is that? And I'm like, what is that? You, that that's, that is the problem with people our age. Yeah. I mean, most, I mean, I don't even want to just generalize people our age. That's with most common American people. And I think it's become, they, they've become so used to it. Um, and I'm not one of those conspiracy theorists, you know, like program, they're programming us type people, but I definitely think that we've gotten so accustomed to just thinking the news is telling us everything factual and 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 that hasn't been the case for 50 years dude like the news was telling people that lee harvey oswald was the guy who shot jfk and that jack ruby killed him because he felt bad for jackie and he loved jfk so much i mean are you and the people fucking believed it that was in the 60s you know yeah 1963 so this has been happening for a long time and it's just now coming to a head i think but on the contrary which is kind of a good thing i think a lot more people are becoming aware of the of the fakeness of a lot of news, you know, and yeah. you listen, look, Fox has its moments. Don't get me wrong, you know, like I love Sean Hannity a lot, but you know, Sean is biased. But guys like Tucker, Greg Gutfeld, those aren't biased dudes. You're getting the real deal from those guys, you know, and yeah, that's like no Tucker. and that's no disrespect to Sean Hannity at all. But um, so anyway, yeah, I just it's really and social media has really, really, really had a negative impact on society. I think too. When it comes to news, you know, and our relationships with other people, um, well, it's, it kind of hits on this weakness of ours, in my opinion, which is that we don't put enough emphasis on on history and and applying the lessons from history to like our country going forward. Right. Because if you put, you know, I was reading that book I, I told you about, um, War Without Mercy, uh, and it's about propaganda in the in uh, during World War Two, you know, it talks about the U.S. and the rest of the Allies, but pr- promote uh, predominantly the U.S. and Japan and the rest of Asia, but predominantly Japan, right? Right. And both sides were were equally, you know, sh- churning out propaganda for their citizens, right? Right. Now, like you know, before every uh, Marine, I guess, would go fight, they'd show them this video, which is on Netflix, and like I was telling you about that. Um, I don't know if it's the exact same film or if they've edited it, edited it since, you know. But anyways, it's supposed to be something along the lines of what they would show Marines before they went to Japan. Right. And it's this is actually what, what really was good. It? Yeah, I'm interested. What what did they like? What would they show them? They well, they uh, had an intro part which kind of had all the stuff like you know women in kimonos, kimonos and and samurai and whatnot. But uh, then it basically said, you know, in order to understand the Japanese, you have to learn about them, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like, typical, like, 40s uh, movie commentator thing. Right. Um, but then it 
you know, actually told a pretty accurate and detailed history of the country, you know, because Japan has a, the, one of the most fascinating histories of all, of all the countries. Right. Um, and you've and been they, there, right? Yeah, I, I went there and they told, you know, I learned, um, I've learned about, you know, the, the feudal history is like one of the most interesting parts. That's where the samurai were. You know, they were the elite class, the 1% of the population. Were they um, wealthy? I think, yeah. Or were they just, was it like wealth, like as far as well, respect, yeah. or was it financial wealth? Well, both, because like you, there were things called daimyo, which were like. I remember um, hearing about that, believe it or not, in Jay Hatch's high school class, that term. Yeah, they were like, uh, there's, there's something in, you know, like medieval Europe. Uh, feudal society that's the same but it's like the person who owns a bunch of land right right and that's who all the farmers and artisans or whoever most probably the artisans would have been in the cities right but the the farmers the peasants who you know toiled the land they'd all pay tax to the daimyo who had a bunch of samurai warriors on his uh payroll and then who were basically mercenaries right right and then he had uh all this land that he owned and he that was a daimyo and there were like bunches of there were daimyo all over the whole country because it was it wasn't unified as one country right Right. japan was a bunch of uh feudal feudal lords and and warlords like with different clans that were just battling all the time kind of like what we think of uh north america with the native americans before columbus and the europeans arrived right right the evil yeah columbus europeans so anyways uh they actually did a pretty good job of uh I mean, as far as I could tell with my, you know, studying of Japan, like, it's, it was pretty accurate, the history. They they talked about um, everything up until, you know, because after that feudal period, um, there was a guy called Tokugawa Ieyasu, and he was uh, a samurai who basically conquered all of the warlords that were fighting at the time. He basically was like an apprentice to this really powerful war- warlord, uh, Hideyoshi, I forget his uh, first name, but um, he, that guy, like, killed a bunch of people, took over a huge swath of land in Japan, um, and was, like, one of the most powerful warlords, and he died before he, before he could, uh, like, conquer all the other remaining warlords, right? Right. (laughs) And, uh, anyways, then, once he died, Ieyasu took over his his command he took over as as you know boss of this army and conquered the rest of the people and declared himself supreme leader of japan and that's what the shogun was right um and then after that up until um i don't know i think it was like 17th century maybe but anyways um the shogun found out about all these uh portuguese jesuits that uh were talking about jesus and this powerful god that you couldn't see someone more powerful than the shogun and he didn't like right. that so he kicked them all out and japan spent well, like was 300 it Jesus years or was it just something like kind of like that well it was christianity it's, they were jesuits so they were preaching oh, uh, preaching like you know the bible and jesus and mary so they hadn't had a lot of converts you know people in japan were you know semi-religious up until that point but it was more of like a way of life instead of religion you know like instead of praying to jesus or whatever they would pray to like the nature gods you know right which are there are abundance which is very similar to like native american tradition yeah um, um which i will say as even though i'm a catholic um and i love being catholic i do think that there is a lot of merit to that 
I, you know, I, I don't think I think there's a lot more merit to that than there are some of the other more mainstream religions that uh, exist today. Well, that's one of the reasons why I think, despite its uh, contemporary misgivings, uh, China's like super fascinating as well. You know, especially since they've been, uh, you know, one society for thousands of years, so one of the oldest civilizations. Right. Which and they've had you know this infinitely longer and more complex and detailed history than you say Japan or the US for sure right now here's the question here's the million dollar question about China is that how many different types of government have existed in China in that history it's not always been communism right well when you mean government what do you mean like what forms of government like that's pretty much all they've had I'm pretty sure See, that's fascinating because I've never, I guess other than China, no communist government has ever well, lasted very long. Well, they had an empire, like a, a um, what like do you call Britain? it, dynasty, you know, like emperor's system. That's a form of government. Right. But like contemporary forms, like, you know, democracies or whatever, it was just, just communism. Because right. the, it was in the 50s or 60s, something like that. They had the revolution. Right. Um, Chiang Kai-shek, who was the pro-West pro-capitalism leader of a political party or like a group of people i don't know if i if it was a more of a political party or just a group but he was the leader of that he had been schooled in um Shankai shek was a good guy right he was like friends allies with the u.s like his he i think studied in in america or one of his kids did or something like that he was really pro-west right and mao zedong was the leader of the communists you know right and they both teamed up together and like killed off the other powerful warlords that were in China because it was a similar situation to Japan. There were like these feudal, what was kind of like remainder of like dynasty type things. But anyways, those guys teamed up, killed them all. And then Mao just turned his back on Chiang Kai-shek and said, you're next. And that's why they fled to Taiwan and killed the indigenous people there, you know, like everyone does that happened in japan too right and that's something i wanted to touch on in a minute but continue I but yeah so that's why taiwan is not a, not communist and uh you know basically pro-west pro-capitalism and that's right. why china is so pissed off that they don't control it because right. ever since that day i don't remember what day or what year it was but ever since that happened you know Chang, or mao always you know wanted to take over taiwan because it was part of china in their eyes right so and they've had that for, you know, since then, that Taiwan was theirs. Same with Hong Kong, too. They feel the same. They feel like that's part of China, and we're going to do everything in our power to fucking make it so. You know what's funny about the Hong Kong thing is that for years, I mean, my whole life, you know, my Uncle Randy uh, travels the world for Kone, um, and he's, up until this coronavirus thing, they would have him go over there a lot, and... Uh, because he does, he's like the head of, um, he fixes, Kone is an escalator and elevator, you know, company. And he goes across the world and fixes problems that the people over there can't fix, right? So he flies all over the place and he always goes to China and goes to Hong Kong a lot. Well, I never knew that Hong Kong wasn't a part of China, like technically. Mm-hmm. And I, until you told me that, I, that really fascinated me. I always assumed that that was part of China. So Hong Kong is its own thing, is its own country. Hong Kong was a port where... Back in, I don't know, I'm trying to think, um, hundreds of years ago, um, it was a port in China, you know, one of the most wealthiest ports where all these different countries came and traded. And 
Because it's on the Pacific, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, uh, anyways, so like, if I remember correctly, basically, all the, you know, the Germans, the uh, England, uh, you know, all the powerful Western countries, you know how they were all, they call it a sphere of influence. They'd have like a place in, you know, in Africa, like in all those countries, like the French would have their right. country or their whatever, and they'd have their port. It was kind of like the same thing in Hong Kong, but they all divvied it up. So the German, Germany, England, France, they all had their own like section of Shanghai or well, Shanghai too, but Hong Kong. And they just kind of did their own thing as far as trading. England eventually ended up taking it over. And then it was a colony of England for, you know, I don't know how many years, decades. Um, but they, I think when they, when England took it over, they said like, I'm, I'm kind of fuzzy on the thing, but they said like, we take over Hong Kong uh, for 99 years or something. That's why they became independent in like 1997, I think. It was because that super long ancient contract like finally expired. Right. And so England gave them, gave it up. Right. And of course that made China mad, right? Because they want Hong Kong and to right. go against that would be, is to go against China. You know, they're real serious about it. But anyways, yeah, Hong Kong now is independent, but the problem with Hong Kong is they've had, uh, you know, the CCP in China, of course, has had their tentacles in and they have like puppet people that run for election in, in Hong Kong. Right, and, to try and get influence, right? Yeah, and that's and why control. you saw millions of people protesting when they came up with that extradition law. I can't remember exactly what well, the... Yeah, what was that? Was that like was that basically like if you committed a crime that was considered a crime in China and Hong Kong that they could extradite you from Hong Something Kong Something like China? that, yeah. That's and fucked no up. wonder there were millions of people protesting yeah. because they, were, they you know, people China in Hong say Kong... anything say, is illegal that yeah. they want. Yeah, this is just the most absurd law you could think of, you know, like, oh, I can get extradited to Mexico if I commit a Mexican crime here in the U.S.? That's right. Just, like, that doesn't make sense. Anyways, yeah, um, so Hong Kong has been free, and of course the people like freedom and not having censored internet and all the, you know, negative things with communism, and they have a lot of other problems because they're right on the border with China, like Guangzhou, which is where all these, um, you know evictions and stuff have been going on too but they have there's been problems with um powdered milk there was some sort of uh national catastrophe where this powdered milk company in china like they found out they were putting all these nasty chemicals in there and so really surprising yeah and a bunch of babies died and stuff and uh um it's just despicable yeah uh and so nobody wanted to buy chinese powdered milk anymore Right. And right. so all these mainland Chinese people would go to Hong Kong and buy out all the all the uh, milk powder, kind of like what's going on with the stores around. You know, yeah. people are panic buying. It. So and then the Hong Kong people are like, wait a second, we need powder milk, too. But it's, there's nothing on the shelves. So that's what that's one problem that's been going on recently. But uh, yeah, it's that's a hotbed of this of the whole China issue. And that's kind of like another reason why it's helpful to like learn about that shit if you want to understand the whole coronavirus thing and how how oh, bigger of an impact it is than just like oh this virus happened in China and it got out like no 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 there's no, a lot of so shit going on more. behind the scenes that's, with that's the, the CCP which yeah in, in you know I don't think it's any stretch of the mind to say that they're basically today's equivalent of, of the Nazi regime because yeah they have their CIA that just constantly spies on you if they want, and they get any kind of 
um, information they want from you. You don't have any of the rights you got here in China. You know, you don't have like freedom of speech for one. You say anything critical of the government, and they don't, and they don't like you enough. They're you're in jail. You have no, you know, there's no right ifs, ands, or buts about or it. Or like those reporters. Um, or I don't know if she was a reporter or she was a physician or something that was kind of a whistleblower to the U.S. about the coronavirus, and she's missing. Yeah, just went missing. So she's either dead or she's in prison. It, it, China reminds me of the Church of Scientology. And then know. they lie about it. Yeah, when people ask like, what happened to that re- reporter? Oh, she uh, went back and she wrote a note. Like they have, a, you know, they just come up with right. schemes like that. It, yep, it's crazy. Now I wanted to ask you something, um, because it interests me, and I believe you're the person who told me about this, and I hopefully I'm correct about the opium wars. Didn't we talk about the opium yeah. wars? Okay, can you can we like kind of uh, expand on that because I want to get into that issue in a little bit. But I, I will fill me in on that again because I really find that interesting how that because that's kind of contributed to the okay well I yeah to I the can, hatred of the West right yeah um, I don't know a whole lot about them the specifics but basically um, a long hundreds of years ago a few hundred years ago um, I think it was like sixteen hundreds or fifteen hundreds something like that somewhere in there right um, England. That was back when, you know, the sun never set on the English Empire. So they were like, you know, world police, but, you know, in more of a taking over shit role, right? Right. Bef- you know, were so. They imp- were, would you consider them imperialist? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, they were, you know, not not nowadays, but they were de- back then. That was when they were, you know, that was one of the major stints of imperialism for them, right? right. Was like this period of time. Um, and anyways, they basically what happened in a nutshell was they like, went to China and introduced opium to people to get them addicted to opium and then once the Chinese people said hey England we really like this opium stuff where can we get more they said yeah but you have to pay us in gold and silver bars and so they basically had England this England was a drug dealer yeah well they <laughs> yeah it's kind of like a pimp really they yeah. got China on on drugs got them hooked and then made them pay with like their mom's jewelry you know wow and so for I don't know how long, maybe half a decade or maybe longer. They just raked in all this silver and gold and other resources from the Chinese and, and just in trade for opium, which they're all addicted to. Which is something that China could have just grown themselves, probably. And so China had this huge problem of, you know, heroin addicts. Yeah. And then that became, uh, you know, enough people got pissed off. And this is where I don't know the information, but, you know, they had a rebellion about it. Or, and, and then China ended up going to war with Britain. That's why it's called the Opium Wars. And I think, if memory serves, that, you know, China didn't put up much of a fight, but, like, the diplomatic side kind of got them, got England to stop or, like, cool it. And right. then I think they went back and did it again, like, years later. England, and right. then they had another war because there were two opium wars. I just don't know a whole lot about them, but it's, it's super kind of like the U.S. with the War of eighteen twelve. How it was like a uh, they came back a few years later because they, you know, it was like unfinished business or something. <laughs> you know, two and zero, baby. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, that's interesting, and I've always thought that was fascinating because I feel like that probably contributed to their distaste for the West. Oh yeah, I forgot to say so that um. After that whole debacle is when, uh, I'm pretty sure is when they uh, they had what's in China, they call it the, um, like the years of, of 
torture or something like that or like the century of of suffering something like that but it's basically the time period from like you know 1500 to like 1800 or something some uh, rough estimate uh, because i don't know all the info but basically where they were getting taken advantage of in every way possible as far as money resources shit like the opium wars you know having all their ports basically being you know like bent over by all these uh, european powers right they were just like so sick and tired of that and were like this attitude that arose from it like you said was like we never want to go back to that much suffering so china needs to be like the most powerful country in the world it's amazing that they've been able to keep uh, like get their population to keep that mindset for so long i mean for well that's m- where the propaganda comes in yeah. because they have so much of it that of course everyone's on the same page you know mm-hmm. and it's also you know true that you know for the most part chinese people as a society or china as a society is more homogenous than say the the, you know the u.s or something right or any western country really yeah they don't have it's kind of like japan japan's the most homogenous society uh, like you know lowest percentage of non-japanese that live there right right same with china china is actually a very diverse country because they have total so many different types of ethnic groups that live there like ethnic chinese groups right um and then there's the whole thing with you know the other 90-something percent of the people being Han Chinese, which is, like, one ethnic group. But Can I ask you something about that? Well, from what I've heard, a lot of those people that are Han, like, aren't actually Han. Like, my teacher at school, she uh, she told us at once... At Augie? Yeah, but, you know, I won't say uh, her name. Anyways. Yeah. Anyways, she, yeah, she told me that she wasn't even sure if she was Han because, you know, back then, during, like, the revolution times, people said, you know, oh, uh... Yeah, of course I'm Han. Because if you didn't, you'd get mistreated. I don't know if that so meant killed. So it was almost like being Jewish. In, kind of, in yeah. Nazi Germany. That's that's kind of what I was told, or that's the the um, you know idea that I was from what I was told. Now I have a question about that, and I I mean this in a totally sincere and honest way, and I don't mean this to have any sort of racial undertones, but it's a serious question um, because I'm fascinated. So the ethnic groups of Chinese are there? Do they can? Like, do they physically appear different than other ethnic groups of Chinese people? Or, you know what I'm saying? To some degree, yeah. I mean... That's interesting. Like, for instance, there's, uh... You know, have you heard of the Uyghurs? Um, I mean, I think I've heard that term before, but I... That's one of the ethnic groups. Well, they're apparently... I don't know as much about this, but that's something that Nate always talks about, is that they're being, like, held in basically concentration camps in China oh, just because they're, they're Muslims. Muslims. Yeah. Okay, yes, I know what that but is. Yeah. They're called Uyghurs and they live near the, uh, China's border with I don't know like Tajikistan or something. One of those countries and you see that a lot is that all a lot of the most of the ethnic groups that are different from Han are like along the borders because it's just an area where, you know, people from Tajikistan or whatever lit, went and lived in this in China and vice versa and then they kind of intermingled. Right. Same with um, Mongolia, you know. Mongolia is a separate country that's north of China, right? But right. you have Mongolian or Mongol, like, that's another ethnic group in China because, you know, people from Mongolia moved to China and back and forth. and Right. Yeah. So it, it's kind of a melting pot in a weird, different way. Wow, that's <laughs> kind crazy. Of like, uh, it's like a hot pot, which is a Chinese thing. Like, Han is the broth and then the other bits and pieces that you throw in are the rest of them but right. that's that's those are the recognized ones that's by the the CCP I mean they have some that they don't even recognize right and I went to uh, this thing where it was like a huge like a zoo kind of that's how big this place was 
think of it like a zoo, but it was uh, all these different ethnic groups uh, had like their own area where their ancient or traditional clothes and the way they lived was on display. Kind of like the pilgrim things that you go to as a kid. Right. So they had that for all these different ethnic groups, like 60 of them or something. So I want to get back on to the topic of the coronavirus real quick, Is that if that's okay. Sure. So um, why... Yeah, I talk funny sometimes. Um, why is it that our let's our age group? So me and you are technically millennials. I think you're technically a millennial, aren't you, or barely? But we're both we're both born in the '90s. Why is our generation so? Um, I don't want to say confused, but like they're it's like they're um, intellectually illiterate. Yeah. What's the deal? Well, really, just being straight up, and I and I'm not. Coming from, I'm not speaking down to my peers or anything like that, but I am just extremely disappointed in in just in, in how uneducated we are about stuff, you know. And it's and it's a problem because what's going to happen when our generation comes to power? I don't know what you call it, but um, there's something because described it, in uh, I think human psychology or human behavioral studies where you know um, too much of something makes you worsen like basically think of it this way when you have netflix you can never decide what you want to watch because there's so many shows right right you ever felt that way or heard about that type of feeling same type of thing with people our age like we grow up with a phone in our hand so there's all this information out there and by some way of nature it like makes you less likely to learn or something or be interested in things because you're desensitized by everything being so available and that's what's interesting because you know the internet it's such a beautiful thing because pretty much almost every piece of information in the history of humankind is it exists and is accessible but we don't yeah uh, that's the amazing thing is you know if you want to learn to do like almost anything there's either a book on how to do it which is online now or even better a video about how to do it you know i changed my uh one of the sensors on my car because oh. I watched a video. Yeah, I was going to tell you, um, my friend Doc, you know Doc, um, he has a Porsche, and I learned how to change the oil on his Porsche uh, literally from a YouTube video. And uh, it's funny that you said that. Yeah, think about that. Back in the day, you'd have to go and buy one of those manuals. I forget the company name, but you, you remember those things? It'd be like Ford Taurus 1990 through yep. 2000 or whenever that model was uh, or generation was a thing. Yeah. You'd have to go buy the book and look up the section on... Uh, oil changes and and see the oh, diagrams on how to do it. No, thank you. But but um, think about that. That's what people did, and it's crazy. I you, people like you and I, because we never lived it, we can't even fathom it all the way. Right. But people that are living now that were also there, they lived it, but yet they don't have to do it anymore. So imagine being them. That's going to be us when we're you know forty or whatever. We're going to be like, why are these kids? They don't have to hold their phone. It just appears in front of them, you know, a screen or something. Right, like it floats. Holograph. Yeah. yeah. It's like I had to hold my phone and all, my wrist I got had to all charge fucked it. up because. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, and then like you got this stuff with all these stores around here now, you know, forcing you to wear masks, and like the state of Illinois, and I, I could be wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure that I, I'm accurate on this. So they they label they put up these statements right of these executive orders and if you read them the wording makes it sound like you have to but it if you read the words it doesn't say that you it's not a legal thing and so people will just believe oh the government said that we should do this so that means we have to 
And, uh, you know, like all these stores and businesses around here, like I got kicked out of a gas station yesterday uh, for, because I wasn't wearing a mask. And I just, it, it, at what point does our safety and our freedom, at what point do they meet? And at what point does one become more important than the other? And the you know, more and more studies are coming out, accurate studies, legit studies from liberal universities like, like Stanford that are saying, you know, when they did the antibody test in Santa Clara County, that, you know, there is a, a good chance that most of this country has already had it or has it. And it's nowhere near as lethal or as deadly or as dangerous as they are saying. And one of our very close friends is an ER nurse at our, our at our biggest hospital here in the Quad Cities. And I hear about the patients every day. Like, not I mean, obviously, it doesn't tell me their information, but I hear about yeah. the what they see every day. And it's just not what the media is saying and what most people are believing. And it's really causing damage. I mean, I know a, 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 um, a bar owner who, uh, it was a venue that I played at many times. He committed suicide a few weeks back. Really? Because of because all this, yeah, because he, you know, he's been losing everything. Oh, shit. That and sucks. And I'm sure that's happening everywhere. I'm sure people are shooting up, doing drugs, you know. A lot of bad things are happening because of what's going on. And I just, at what point is this worth it? Yeah, I. You know, because you then you look at countries like, and I don't know if it was Sweden, one of the European countries, uh, didn't do anything uh, when it came to the coronavirus, and they basically they the whole herd immunity or ugh, herd immunity thing. Yeah, and it worked. Mm-hmm. So you know, and I know that the government is seizing this opportunity as a moment to squeeze in a lot of stuff that they know that they couldn't normally get in. You know, like it, during the stimulus bill. You know, they hold those bills hostage until they get in things that they want. And then, you know, isn't that so weird that it, phenomena, they add little I forget there's a word for it in political science. It's like adding fat to it or something like that. But they add shit in there like and, you know, in the fine print. Yeah, because just to be, because, appease their fucking. Yes. Pe- like uh, what do they call it? You Lobbyists. Know, people that donors. are. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's because, for instance, let me give you an example. So Trump has this bill, right, the stimulus bill. He's got, I mean, it has to go through, or well, not, not Trump, but let's say Congress. They have to put this bill through. Otherwise, everybody in the country, you know, is just going to go without the money. will tank. Yes. So they have to put this bill through. So the opposing side's like, ooh, perfect. Let's squeeze in all this stuff that they hate because we know that they're going to have to pass it anyways. Right. You know, so they squeeze in, you know, the green stuff on the airlines. The airlines have to all be green by 2025 and all this crazy stuff. And uh, it's just, uh, I think the coronavirus has done a lot of bad to the economy, but I do think that we are going to come out of this way better because we're going to be a lot more woke. And and when I say woke, I mean actually woke, not like these dumbasses that walk around acting like they're woke and they're not. They're idiots. Yeah. Um, I think we're going to come out of this a lot more enlightened about how things really work. But anyways, I don't know. I just wanted to go on a rant about that for a minute because I'm just... I'm pretty, I don't get hysterical about stuff, you know, um, except for weather. But uh, I just, I'm getting to the point now where I'm just really getting fed up and pissed off about all this because it's so overblown and so stupid, you know. And yes, is it an illness? Yes. Can it kill people? Yes. But, it, you know, did you see, Joe, the, the CDC today lowered the uh, death toll by 20,000 from coronavirus? They lowered it? They lowered it. But it went, it went down from 60-something to 37,000. Jeez. Yeah. So the flu has killed more people this year than coronavirus. But people will tell you, oh, it's because of social distancing. But that's bullshit. <laughs> and they know it's bullshit. I don't know. I, I just, like, normally I don't care, like I was saying earlier. Uh, but I think it's 
people are just blowing off the fact of what China's doing, the cover, the government, you know, like, right. like I think- was saying down there, you know, um, well, here, let me get this out. Um, you know, they, they had this, this, uh, virus, uh, you know, being studied in Wuhan, right? And who knows what they were trying to accomplish with it or do, but, you know, I was saying the one, one idea I heard was they were trying to, you know, boast about their capability of, of vi- virology, is that what you said it's called? Yeah. So, but then I when it got out, pronounce it. yeah, whenever they got, it got out, um, cause China's, you know, they're not good at doing certain things. So it got out and then they locked down Wuhan cause God forbid, you know, a Chinese person gets infected, which, you know, is understandable, protect your own citizens. But like, who gives a fuck about all these people that are leaving Wuhan? Cause there were so many flights out of Wuhan. You've been to Wuhan. Have, I've been there. Yeah. 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 Uh, there's a guy from the place I went to school who was an alumni, you know, and we got to go to his uh, restaurant in Wuhan. And I was thinking like, whoa, wonder what he's going through now. I don't know. Have you spoke to him? No, I didn't. I only met him when I was there, which was like four years ago. But right. uh, yeah, I don't know. He had an English school too. Wow. Um, but yeah, like base people aren't aware of the implications of this shit. You know, like this is the Chinese government blatantly and with no regard for humanity like letting a lethal super lethal or maybe not that lethal but still lethal nonetheless economically lethal which economically is lethal a for sure virus bad. just go wherever we don't care we just mm-hmm. and then when the, you know people said what the fuck china they go oh well, wasn't our fault it could have came US. from america yeah and then they tell all their citizens oh everyone's saying it's from the uh from here but it's from the u.s so don't worry about it guys and then the chinese people you know they just believe it because they've been used to living in you know communist society which is you just learn what the government says or else yeah now i wonder if and i don't want to say it's biological war but i wonder if china did this um either on purpose because of trump because here's what's been happening so since trump's been in office um you know the, the the trade deals he's been making and the tariffs and stuff have really been boosting America and bringing America back to being an extremely big superpower economically in the world, more so than we have been recently. And I wonder if this was China's way of trying to force the U.S. like basically to tank. You know, I've been thinking about that too. I wonder, because it was a pretty damn good way to do it. You know what I mean? Now, I don't know if that... Or, Why or would they want our economy to tank if, if their economy is so reliant on ours? Good question. Good, and I don't have an answer for that. That is a good question. So, But I could see maybe them wanting to, like, weaken us. Yeah. Because it definitely did. You know, and, or, this too, they certainly can't like Trump being in office because of, of how, <laughs> you know... Uh, they don't most, like dealing with him. Yeah, how strong he is with our trade... And maybe this is their way of trying to tank the U.S. economy and help Trump's opposition uh, get him out of office so they can, you know, get their free candy back, so to speak. Yeah, and, you know, there's speculation that China is, you know, has its influence in the World Health Organization because apparently they were saying, like, oh, it's not a big deal at the beginning. and then Oh, there's video clips telling, on them all saying how it wasn't a big deal. And then telling people that... Which uh, it's not. <laughs> not to call it the, the Wuhan flu or whatever, or right. the Chinese virus, but on their website, they have, you know, the Spanish flu. Ebola. And Ebola, yeah, mm-hmm. which, for those who don't know, is a it, river in the Congo, Yep. which is where the virus, that virus Zare. came from. I think it's still called Zare, the country. If it's not, it used to be. 
That's where. Oh it was yeah, from. the Congo. Yeah. yeah, I think it's the Democratic Republic of the Congo now. Yeah, but it's war-torn. You know. Crazy place. Which is a disease that has like an 87% mortality rate. Just to let you folks know what a real scary disease is like, that's a real scary disease. Also, f- because it's so worth telling people about, and if only one person hears it, it's still awesome or worth telling. But uh, look up King Leopold II on Google. He was a Belgian king who went to the Congo, declared it his own property, not the property of Belgium, like, you know. I guess any other country that owns shit would it'd be like own property of the country, not that person. But he claimed the Congo as his own property, like his own yard, basically. Like yeah, his, and then wow. they because they figured out that you could uh, harvest um, rubber from the trees in the forest, and so that guy went down to the Congo and forced uh, all these Congolese people into uh, bauxite mines to mine for bauxite or not bauxite uh, rubber, these rubber plants. And he killed like 15 something million Congolese people. And just, he's not talked about at all in history. I've never even heard Other of than him. Hitler, you know, not like Hitler or Stalin, but like this guy killed way many people, way bigger. I don't know if I'd say it's genocide or not, but yeah, I killed a bunch of people, 15 million Congolese people. And that country has just been worse than China, maybe. It's just been like, you know, oh my God, pillaged oh, and raped else. for its entire country. And I feel really, you know, my heart goes out to the Congo and the people there. Yeah, some of those African countries, it is it's unbelievable what the what the people that you know, the citizens that live there have to go through on a daily basis. And and I can't speak too much about it because I'm really not that educated on it. But just from based on what I've seen and read, man, it, it's we're just really damn lucky that we live where we live. You yeah. Know? And that's another thing that people our age have got to remember. I mean, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Like, um, you know, we're sitting here in this studio, you know, in, in my house, uh, you know, with me and Joe's, you know, we have everything, like some of the stuff that we've always wanted to have right here, you know, stuff that there's kids over in Africa that can't even get fucking rice to mm-hmm. eat during the day, you know, and we're sitting here doing this. And I just There's think people that, in China that are that impoverished too, which is another fucked up thing. Yeah. But yeah, I was going to say uh, another fucked up thing that China or the government is doing is, you know, they've been... Uh, investing heavily in in Africa so they'll go and build buildings over there or whatever they do and they'll like sell machine guns and and other sorts of arms and weapons to like militant groups and stuff I don't know if it's exactly you know like Joseph Kony and those like militant groups that just like hide out in the jungle in places like Nigeria and stuff right you know they China I I, as far as I remember uh, has been you know selling weapons to groups like them and they have all this money and shit invested. You know how in America, even um, the Chinese have been investing in property and stuff? I've heard about that. I, yeah. I heard about this when I was in New York um, back in January. And um, this dude was telling me that the uh, Chinese investors will buy uh, these huge sky-rise apartments and they just leave, sit, they sit empty. These huge apartments in like the richest areas in Manhattan, they just sit empty apparently. Because the Chinese buy them, because they know it's it's you know high market property, yeah, and they just. I'm telling you, do you know much about the Church of Scientology? No. Okay, so I won't spend too much time on this topic, but my mom lives in Clearwater, Florida, and that's where their world headquarters is, and China literally acts just like the Church of Scientology. So, and you'll go down there with me sometime, but downtown Clearwater is just, and I'm not talking about the beach. So the beach is on the other side of downtown. It's this beautiful downtown with this beautiful strip of just, you know, where the strip, you know, however downtown has that, like, it's beautiful. And this Church of Scientology went in and bought all of these buildings and all these businesses, and they're just completely empty. 
and they just sit there. That's weird. Yeah. And it's for control. They're trying to take control of the city, you know, and I just, yeah, anyway, I just, China very much so reminds me of Scientology. I'm skeptical of the Mormons, too, because they seem to me like one of the nicest and most non-threatening of those, like, kind of weird culty religions. Right. Because I've been to Salt Lake City, and you can go down to the Mormon, uh, like, National Ancestry Research Facility, and they'll they'll do your whole, like, ancestry as... Because they have, like, one of the world's biggest archives for, like, ancestry shit. Really? Yeah, like, immigration records and stuff like that. Wow. So, and you go down there, and they'll do your whole ancestry as far as they can do with their resources uh, for free. Because they have this huge database. But that's just because that's part of their religion is, like, doing good, like, without any benefit. You know, just helping people. Right. So that's kind of part of it. And Salt Lake City, from what I saw, which was, you know, not that much, but it seemed like a really nice, you know, clean, probably safe place of, you know, I, I've a heard big, that it's for a big nice. city. Yeah, I've heard that it's like Buffalo. Oh, it's beautiful, but, you know, I didn't spend that much time there. Not like in New York where I was walking over or walking everywhere and seeing everything, you know. Yeah. And for what it's worth, New York is a shithole, but it's fucking New York. So it's it, right. it's kind of like doesn't even really bother you. Be, you know, you don't mind seeing the rats. And I, I don't even live there, but I kind of went there with the intention of like this is what new york seems to be like is this what it's really about and i kind of put myself in and i was like fuck yeah this is new york i like it here see and i that's i've always wanted to go there you know and i a friend of mine so one of my favorite uh songs is a song called new york state of mind by billy joel and uh my friend billy billy pfeiffer uh you know bill billy shot a music video a lynn allen music video in new york city in the 90s and uh, for one of their singles and he told me he said Colin that song sounds like what New York feels like and I've always wondered you know like does New York did it live up to your expectations like did it feel like what you thought it would feel like yeah I just maybe this is just me and this is uh, goes back to your point about what's wrong with our generation basically is I don't think people have the same kind of like reverence for things from the past whether it's people places like when I went to New York like I'm just thinking the whole time like this is where you know FDR grew up and like all these famous people that we know from New York and this is where so much history happened like September 11th just that too I went to the memorial unbelievable that's a whole story but yeah that it's just about that it's a crazy place um because that's something I've that and going to Dealey Plaza are the two things I've always wanted to do because it's such a almost a holy it's like they're almost a holy site in a way. Let me do Dealey Plaza first. Okay. Because that one's shorter and and we were talking about JFK earlier. Um, I went there. It's in Dallas, so I was in Fort Worth, but you have to take a train or you can take a train, which I did. It's like half an hour or something to t- from Fort Worth to Dallas, and. Anyways, um, Dealey Plaza is like this... It, first of all, it's way smaller than I thought. It's like a... There's a bunch of skyscrapers around, one of which... Maybe not skyscrapers, but huge buildings in this cluster in part of the city. And one of them is where the sixth floor, right? Where yeah, the Texas J- School Book Depository. Yeah, so that's one of the buildings in this cluster of, like, really tall buildings. And there's this small road. And when I say small road, it's kind of... It's a two-laner, but it's not like a big road by any means it's something you'd see around here maybe right but in the middle of dallas and it kind of does this little like curve through this um like i said triple underpass this yeah kind of this well the cluster of big buildings this little road goes through and it goes underneath that uh, that upper pass right 
And so, and, and send, and on either end of the, of the road are these patches of grass kind of randomly on this little tiny hill. Right. And so you can literally stand where I stood, you know, on the grassy knoll cause there's like a placard on the ground and like maybe one other monument or something. Right. But you can kind of stand like at the top of the grassy knoll and you know, I'm only like maybe like 20, 30 feet from the road. It's kind of small. So and, it's that And there's close. like the fence, you know, the fence that they have. Yeah. It's really close to the top of that hill. It's all really, really smaller than I thought. And I went up in the sixth floor museum, which is like the same building, but you can't go on the actual sixth floor. You can go up, like the museum is like one through five, and then you go to seven, I think. No, I wonder why that is. And that's like a recreation of the, you know, what it looked like that day. Supposedly. Supposedly, yeah. Yeah, I have a whole... Which, by the way, the museum is like all about that narrative. See, that's why I don't want to... See, that's that's what pisses me off is because I don't want to go But I didn't know anything about the conspiracy before, which I would have. Right, And, and the thing is, I try to tell people... I spent, and I, I don't know why, I think it's because I became fascinated with JFK at a young age because, you know, I'm Catholic and I grew up, and it was always like, you know, you, you, your relatives had a picture of Jesus and then a picture of JFK on the fridge, you know? And so I grew this fascination for JFK, and I, you know, started really, really like just uh, enveloping myself in his life and reading about him and, every, and his all these events and everything. And, dude, his assassination was a perfect example of um, the public getting hoodwinked. <laughs> I mean, really. That, I mean, he, like, seriously. Like, that's... He... It, it's, it was such a blatant lie. You Tell know? the people about that, because that that's, goes back to the China issue, and it, it's important, you know, because everything... Literally, almost everything that we've seen in the last two decades, and, I mean, I'm only two decades old, but everything we've seen has already happened, you know? All the major things, like viruses and governments yeah. lying and people kill, not killing themselves, you know, Yes. assassinations. Like, it's been, yeah. it's already happened. So we had, um, and I'll try to keep this as short as possible because it's extremely intricate, but so the CIA, first of all, shouldn't even exist, number one. <laughs> it really shouldn't. It's a piece of shit organization, and it always has been. But um, because it's not supposed to operate in, in the United States, but it does, and it did. But we had a hit squad that would we would take out leaders around the world that we didn't that we needed gone. Which, for as much as I love the United States, that's shit that like China would do. You know what I mean? Right. And so we had the capabilities of doing stuff like that. And what was happening is so you've heard of the Bay of Pigs, right? Yeah. Okay. So the Bay of Pigs was for some reason. The United States just hated Cuba. So, and listen, I hate communism as much as anybody, but I don't give a damn if Cuba wants to be communist or not. It doesn't affect my life. And we hated the fact that they were communists so much that we had to take out Castro. We had to kill him. So we got um, all of these Cubans, like the American Cubans, like that wanted to, like almost like this brigade of troops that we armed up, and we were going to send them in there, and they were going to storm the beaches of Cuba. And... All the and they were gonna start, you know, just like taking out the government, and they just, just the Americans, uh, intelligence, CIA, were just convinced that the Cuban population would join them and take out Castro. Well, they got there, and that didn't happen, and we got completely wiped out. A bunch of them died. A bunch of them got taken prisoner. And J- this was JFK. He was in office. I got. I think it was like not even six months. And so he's just believing what his generals and his intelligence people are telling him because he's green, he's a rookie. I mean, he was a badass, but he'd never been president before. 
And right. so he just said, all right, all right, guys, I trust you. I'm giving you the green light. <clears throat> well, after while the invasion was happening and it was a complete disaster, the head of the CIA, Alan Dulles, was like, uh, hey man, uh, this is a failure. We gotta send. We gotta send our United States jets in there. We need to invade. We just need to take over. And JFK said, No, I'm not gonna do that. And so he let, you know, figuratively let the left the rest of those guys, the troops there, hanging. But you can't blame him for it. And it was the right thing to do because it would have gotten us into a huge war. Well, that turned his military and you know his CIA people against him. They hated him. And then JFK started to try and make peace with the Soviet Union because we were in this arms race, which people our age cannot fathom. Which that's like the beginning of the Cold War, right? Yeah, yeah. This is like forty nine was the beginning. Well, I but feel like people always associate the Cold War with the eighties, but no, it started the sixties was like the yeah. yeah. It started in forty nine, and nineteen sixty two was the like height of the Cold War, and I'm talking. Like, so it was so almost, it, it literally was the only time in human history where we've actually been this close to the end of the world um, with the Cuban Missile Crisis. And and real quick, before I get back onto the story, I don't want to get on tangent, but people our age think that they know what fear is and that we're supposed to be scared right now. Yeah. The shit that our grandparents had to deal with every day during that week in 1962 of, oh my God, are we going to get nuked today? That's fear. Yeah. But anyway. And fun fact, the reason that the United States and the Soviet Union was able to build the rocket technology that they did was because of the Nazi scientists that f we basically let get off the hook. Yeah, because um, yeah, they had the, was it the V-1. Two. Was it the V-1 rocket? They Something. invented the first rocket, and they they used it a couple times in the war, but it was We worthless. basically split up the, the Nazi scientists with Russia after mm -hmm. World War II, and half of them went to the U.S., and half of them went to the Soviet Union, and then they started helping us build rockets. Right. But anyways, continue. So anyway, so what happened was, is after the Bay of Pigs thing... So uh, when you fly, or you watch SpaceX, or whatever, thank the Nazis. Yeah, it, it, dude, our roller dam, Lock and Dam 15 here on the Mississippi, that's, we got that, we stole that from the Nazis. And we're not, we are not glorifying Nazis or anything, we are yeah, just saying... definitely not. We are just saying that we, we did get a lot of technology from them, and for as evil as they were, they were very smart. Um, but anyways, so after the Bay of Pigs, uh, JFK totally mistrusted the CIA, CIA, and he's been quoted as saying, I want to split the CIA into a thousand pieces. <laughs> and the CIA didn't like that. Well, then when the Cuban Missile Crisis happened, which I will leave that to you listeners uh, who's listening to this to look that up because I can't explain it within an hour. It's just too detailed. But anyway, um, JFK and his brother Bobby and Secretary Bob McNamara were the only three people that did not want to start dropping nuclear bombs on Cuba and had we done that we didn't know it at the time but Cuba already had the Russian nuclear missiles there and it would have been the end of the world didn't they spot that with like a they plane spotted them well they, we we sent you two spy planes over Cuba and they saw they photographed them building the bases but they didn't know that those missiles were already armed uh, and already ready to go. And we didn't know that till like 1989. So JFK never even knew only that. Only 90 miles. Yeah. And that 90 miles for anybody listening from the Quad Cities is from here to Peoria. So that's how close Cuba is to Key West and to Florida. So anyway, so JFK uh, started this secret back channel communication with Nikita Khrushchev. You know, but nobody on either side could know about it because how was it a phone? It was or? it was via an ambassador. The Russian ambassador to the U.S. was friends with Bobby Kennedy. 
So he used Bobby. Oh. He would give the message to Khrushchev to Bobby, and Bobby would take it to the Russian ambassador, and the ambassador would secretly wire it back to Khrushchev. Oh, wow. And nobody in either administration could know about it because politically it would destroy them both because the Russian people would be like, Khrushchev, you pussy, you piece of shit, kill the Americans. And then the Americans would be vice versa, kill that piece of shit, Khrushchev, fuck the Russians. So they did this secret thing. And that kept the peace. And so what they did is JFK and Bob McNamara came up with this idea of a thing called a quarantine, which is a blockade, but they called it a quarantine because quarantine is not a word of war. Mm. And, and back then, I don't know how it is now, but... Maybe like, that's how China got around war declarations with us. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I don't know if how it is now, but like back then, like if you used certain words, it meant war. And so we did this quote-unquote quarantine, which is where JFK just sent all these U.S. destroyers down to Cuba and surrounded Cuba and wouldn't let the Russian ships in. And when the Russian ships got there, they turned around. Whoa. And But there was one day, I think they call it Black Saturday, which would have been Saturday, October 27th, 1962, where um, I think I, one of our U-2 spy planes flew over Cuba to take more pictures, and a Cuban shot it down and killed the pilot. Which is, which is an act of war. And, like, our people were pressing JFK hard, like, bomb him, let's do it. And he wouldn't do it. And um, there was a guy on a Russian ship or a Russian sub that had a nuclear missile and thought that he was told to fire it. And I believe that he started the process of firing this nuclear weapon, and then thankfully somehow word got back to Khrushchev, and then word got back to the sub to not fire that bomb. And they didn't do it, and the Russian ships turned around, and that. I know this sounds crazy, but JFK, and 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 credit to Nikita Khrushchev also are the only two men in the history of the world, and I'm like I said I'm a Catholic, but are the only two men in the history of the world that can probably say that they actually saved the world. Um, and so anyway, but so back to the JFK assassination thing, JFK's military people were furious. Because they wanted to just bomb, you know, Curtis LeMay, bombs away yeah. LeMay. Yeah. Wanted to fucking annihilate Cuba, annihilate Russia, just take over the world and just be imperial America. And JFK wasn't about that. And, which rightfully so. And so what was happening is JFK was making peace with Russia. And they didn't like that. Um, and, you know, several other policy things that JFK was doing that they didn't like. And Lyndon Johnson was... JFK's vice president and he got there by blackmailing JFK. He didn't JFK didn't pick Lyndon Johnson because he needed to win Texas. He would have won Texas anyways. He got he picked him because J, he was going to blackmail him because JFK couldn't keep his wiener in his pants. <laughs> and there was a lot of evidence of that. And uh, so anyway, well Lyndon Johnson was a war hawk and all those CIA guys loved Lyndon. Didn't his family own some sort of helicopter his wife, company yes, or something? Yes, his wife's family owned the helicopter company that built all the helicopters for the Vietnam War. Right. And one of the things that they didn't like was JFK <clears throat> was slowly starting to pull out of Vietnam because he realized it was just a shit show. It wasn't going to go anywhere. It was going to be what it ended up being, a war that was pointless and a bunch of people would die and nothing would get accomplished for anybody. And so they, the CIA probably, so this is presumably... Uh, met with LBJ and we're like, listen, you know, if we take out Jack Kennedy, um, you know, we get you in office, will you do this? And he's like, you know, of course. So Duh. the CIA assassinates John Kennedy because another thing too is that, you know, it, like uh, a lot of people say it was the mafia, right? Well, it, the mafia, th th that is such a bullshit. The mafia didn't have any business, 
you know, the mafia helped JFK get elected. They had no business killing JFK. If they were going to kill anybody, they would have killed Bobby because he was going after them. So anyway, they assassinate JFK. You know, look, watch the watch this, the Zapruder film. See for yourself. The bullet didn't come from behind him. And the way that if you watch this video, and it's violent, it's gory, it's really horrific to watch. But uh, he was shot by an assault rifle with an explosive round. And when you see his head shot, you'll understand. It wasn't the Carcano rifle that they said that Oswald used. And JFK's head explodes and goes back and you know to the left. And if he would have gotten shot from the back, from behind him on the right, his head wouldn't have done that. And I've just read – I literally spent like four years just like just gobbling this information up. And there are so many documents and so many things and uh, stuff like that about this assassination that I don't view it as a like – I mean it is a conspiracy, but the word conspiracy now has this weird meaning to it, you know, and it's not one of those tin hat – tinfoil hat conspiracies. Like it actually happened like that. Yeah, J- I think that's one of the most credible ones out yes, there. Yes, JFK was taken out. Because, you know, in a way, a lot of people aren't going to like this, and I'm not sitting here kissing Trump's ass, but if you take away, you know, the amazing rhetoric of JFK versus Trump's, you know, rather interesting rhetoric, they're very similar presidents. And that's where, you know, I always tell people the same thing that is trying to take out Trump right now is the same thing that took out Kennedy. It's just that it's 2020 and the president is a lot harder to kill (laughs) than he was in 1963. So that's my that's my little thing about JFK. But for those of you listening, though, you seriously should look some of that up, man. It's uh, very fascinating. You know, the 60s, people think, and I'm going to get, the, let me say one last thing. My grandma just passed away in August. God bless her. She was like my mother. But we talked about this stuff all the time because she was my age in the 60s. And I remember asking her, uh, this was in about 2014, 2015, when all the, the race riots in Baltimore were going on and shit. And I was like, Grandma, I was like, was, you know, is this as bad as it was in the 60s? And she goes, Colin, she's like, it's not even close. She's like, and she explained to me, she goes, think about this. She goes, 1963, the president gets assassinated. Five years later, his brother runs for office, he gets killed. Then Martin Luther King gets killed. We're in the middle of the ugliest, nastiest war we've ever been in as far as, like, you know, the um, hatred and, and stuff within our own country. Obviously, besides the Civil yeah. War, there's riots going on, like Kent State, people getting killed, all the racist stuff in the South. With the, I mean, just horrendous. And we are just in such a good position right now. Even with this coronavirus stuff, we'd have no idea what real fear is. Yeah. And so any of you that have grandparents that are still alive, that were, you know, alive back then, old enough to remember it, talk to them about what was going on back then. Because then you'll understand that, you know, you really have nothing to be scared of right now. Well, here, here's the big, like, something I think about a lot, um, which is basically what's happening now with people our age or our generation is what happened to Europe after World War II. Right. Be- and I say, what that means is, um, you know, after World War II, the U.S., Britain, France, you know, the Allies were um, in charge of basically divvying up. It's in there. On the, in the there right there. Oh, in a crack. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Anyway, so after World War Two, you know, of course Hitler's dead. Uh, Japan kneels over to us finally, um, and so basically, it's the U.S. and Britain basically getting to decide, okay, who gets what's going to happen here. Right. Um, 
Uh, well, I lost my train of thought. What was uh, where was I going with that? You well, right. I, was, I was talking about just. About oh how. right, the implications. My bad. Yeah. Um, so. You talk. I, I've lost it. Oh well, I mean, I was just talking about how basically that we've been through so much worse, and and you know we can't even fathom the kind of fear and situations that that our grandparents had to go through in the '60s, and we think yeah. that, it, and everybody's so terrified right now because I, I honestly I think we've been so sheltered and so lucky, and it's been so cozy for us that the smallest little thing, this virus that's no deadlier than the flu. You know, and I'm not saying this virus isn't serious, but it, it's not what they're saying it is. And there's science behind that. Just look it up. Don't watch the fucking news. Anyways, but that's what I was talking about. Now so I remember uh, yeah. what I was saying was is basically uh, after World War II, Europe was just dead set on peace. They didn't have any more war. They didn't want to have a sec. You know, they said that after World War One. We don't ever want to have a war like that again. <laughs> and then World War Two was twice as bad. Yeah, probably worse than twice as, as bad. Yeah. And so they then uh, finally the U.S. and Britain were just like, all right, we're definitely not having this again. And, you know, everybody demilitarized. Fucking the European Union becomes a thing. And so Europeans had no threat. And I think that is the link to where they got soft, for lack of a better word, right? Absolutely. And they always had the U.S. fighting their wars or keeping them safe, right? We've well, always been protecting them. That's what we've them. been. I mean, for the thing it, about, everybody over there. Yeah. We're the, their military. The thing about socialism that no, none of these people our age seem to understand is they 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 bring up Sweden in these places as play, as uh, you know oh this is a good example of socialism they do it and or you know Norway or whatever and it's like well they haven't had a military since ninety three and haven't had to pay for one for Sweden at least like this they haven't had a military for you know decades imagine how much of our military spending or how much of our GDP is military spending yeah if you were to just Trillions. say oh okay you don't have to spend that on anymore you can just do it for whatever of course they can yeah, afford that, that stimulus package that we spent you know this huge one that we just had for the economy we spend I think roughly about that if not more every year on our mil uh, on our on our military spending and, and it's a lot so that of it places goes... like Sweden and Norway and all that yes. can afford those and before they were socialists they they I believe had uh, somewhat freer econ like free market economies and built a lot of their wealth that way right so they're kind of living off that and not having to pay for their government right but not to say that there's no problems with you know our healthcare system but i have no i don't know jack about that so i can't speak on well, that well i but just look anyways i was saying like you know that's why europeans you know at least as far as like the government and stuff have been kind of soft in the past generations and that's why a lot of americans see that and they say, well, that's why we need to tighten up on immigration because they see places like Germany and France and England where they they let all these um, you know Muslim look, refugees look at come all the in. terrorist attacks that have been happening over in Europe and compare them to how many have happened here since September 11th. Right. It's it's not even a comparison. Right, and that's cause for concern, you know, and mm -hmm. it's uh, something that is like super taboo to talk about because it involves people that have, you know, brown skin, but not all Muslims are brown. Yeah, it's not a it's race. Yeah, and it's not about skin, it's about yeah, ideology. It has, it, no, ex exactly. It's all about the ideology because, and that's another thing people our age haven't really studied is like Islam itself. They always say it's a religion of peace. It's, you know, all it's like the same as every other religion but when you actually read the quran and and study it and like look at things it's it's really not and i'm no yeah. expert on the quran or, or islam but i've done you know a fair amount of research and you know i've read the quran too 
it's pretty freaking violent. And yes, um, very. I actually most of the violent stuff, like you know, smite thee at the smite thee at the next, blah blah blah, mm -hmm. that kind of stuff, or like force. There's things you know, like jihad, which is the long, complicated word. But yeah, jihad is basically, uh, for lack of a better, to make it short, jihad is. Uh, you know, when you see suicide bombings happening or when you see September 11th happening, uh, that's jihad. It's the idea that Muslims need to forcibly convert or kill everyone else on the planet. And I'm not making yes. that up. And I'm not. You can look it up. I'm not trying to shit on Islam either. I mean, I respect my Muslim friends and I respect the countries with all, you know, with all due respect. And I respect the religion. But there's some there's some major problems and yeah. we have to address them if we're talking about people that grow up in countries where that's the Doctrine. norm that's the in some cases that's the law you know you've heard yeah. of sharia law yep. well if you have someone coming from like somalia they're not going to mesh well because they've grown up in that system with those values uh they're not going to mesh well with us in america let's say where we you know treat women with the same equality as as men you know which was a big deal right what's her what's what the hell's i'm having a or brain you know stone people we don't stone people to death here Right. We don't, you know, those kinds of yes. barbaric things. And so we have to name? be careful. What's that lady's name in Minnesota? I'm having a brain fart. Ilhan Omar? Oh, my God. Just, that, that, that is exactly the a perfect, because um, she's I, from Somalia. Right, and I, I think she's a bad example of a Muslim. Because yes, she, she talks, is. like, she says crazy shit. And I don't, like, a lot of people on the right, you know, have similar problems is that they think, like, you know, a lot of, most Muslims, all Muslims are, you know, these evil people. But... Which isn't to true. That, to that I say, most Muslims aren't evil people, but that also gets to the point I was making. And, you know, if you look at things like Pew Research polls where they ask people questions, they've done a lot of research by way of these polls in, uh, like, every major Muslim country. Um, and you see the numbers. The questions they're asking are things like, you know, are suicide bombings off, sometimes are often justified? And you see things like... 60% yes, uh, you know, up to like 95% yes in some places, you know, in yeah. some Muslim countries. And so that's kind of a scary thing, right? Because if if you ask you know, people in England or, or America or any other Western country, you know, about suicide bombings and how, how if they're justified or not, uh, you'd get much lower numbers, right? <laughs> yeah, probably like point zero. Or, so yeah. and when it comes to like letting those people, it's not that we don't want those people to come into the country. That's not the thing at all. At least that's not my interpretation of, of people in charge or people that have this thing. But it's like we're saying, hold on a minute, you know. That's literally all it is. Let's figure – let's come up with a plan. Because like Trump said, as bla as blunt as it was, he was like, we got to put a pause on this to figure out what the <laughs> hell is going on. <laughs> that's literally what he said. Yeah, basically. And that, that's why it makes sense because you can see when it when they don't do that in places like Britain, you have – you know, like the Ariana Grande concert. Uh, what happened? Remember there? that there was a bombing in Manchester. You, oh, you remember that? Yeah, that. And I mean, I'm talking mm -hmm. about like all sorts of uh, like child sex rings and stuff like that mm -hmm. that they find in in uh, places in England where they have you know large Muslim populations. Yeah. They have places like in Germany. I went to um, this. Uh, what is it? It's a cathedral in Cologne, and it's infamous for a couple of years ago. They had a like a huge riot there they set out they like set off fireworks or something and they were like i don't know what the number like a, not 200 not 100 but like a couple hundred like sexual assaults and like i don't know if there were any rapes but it was just like this huge 
thing, huge riot where like all these women got sexually assaulted in Germany. And it was like all Muslim, you know, all the Muslim people that were there. So they really, you know, that stuff gets attention. Um, You don't hear about the nice Muslims who don't do any of that shit. But, you know, like I said, people in these Muslim countries for sure. And and some of the people in some of the Muslims in Britain, some of the ones here, they have, they ask those questions to them too. And they have similar answers. It's probably, it's not as high, you know, because they live in the West, but still. And so you have to think about that because to ignore it would just be detrimental to your own safety and safety of our country. Right. And that's the thing is, I think that and all due respect to my Swedish German, you know, all those guys, like not, not trying to bag on you. We're just, I'm just, this is what's important to me and yeah. I, what I think people should be uh, noticing. Yeah. I mean, not I, just ignoring, you know, you know, common sense, my friend, Bill, Bill in Nashville uh, told me, said, Colin, common sense isn't common anymore. And it's absolutely true. And the thing is, is, is that politicians and the media turn issues like this that are not about race that are not about the color of your skin into racial problems so that way they can get votes because you know us talking about islam like we are is not us it's not a first of all islam is not a race you know it's a religion it's an ideology and and radical islam is the problem you know kareem abdul jabbar is not going to fucking kill you <laughs> but osama bin laden will and so will you know a lot many you know over, over in the middle east so it's, that's ideology over there. There's little children, little babies that are raised to believe that that's what they have to do in order to meet their God. Oh, there's so many you know, and it's bad sick. things uh, in the Quran and, and that are taught, like female genital mutilations, one stoning. I saw that article you shared that that's now illegal. And uh, what country was that? Sudan. Yeah. Wow. And wow, how advanced. Oh, my God. It's finally illegal. Like, can you believe that shit? Yeah, that, I mean, that's how fucking long it's taken them to. It's just disgusting. They're animals. Yeah, and the fact that uh, you know slavery was like last outlawed in a lot of African countries, like in the twentieth century. Yeah, well, shit, South like Africa. Nineteen sixties. That's when places like I don't know Mauritania or something outlawed slavery. Like nineteen sixties. Yeah, that's crazy. You know, and I don't care what I think any Portugal was the last major European power to outlaw it. Yeah, and I don't care what anybody has to say about it or what people will call me for saying this, but the United States is the most free, non-racist country on this planet. And it's and I I mean I know I can't say it's a fact because you can't really prove an, uh, an opinion like that, but it's true. Yeah, I I think you, it for the most part. You know what I mean? Right. We just and and the, I'm just sick of hearing, you know, like for instance, like we we just had an African American president for two terms, overwhelmingly elected by white people. Yeah, you know, um, one of the most popular Republicans is a black is a young black woman, Candace Owens. You know what I mean? And that's why I'm sick of and and I'm not necessarily a Republican. I'm kind of in the middle, honestly. If I was alive in the '60s, I'm a Kennedy I'm a Kennedy Democrat all the way. Um, but I'm just sick of politicians <coughs> turning things into race because it's just it's just it's gross. It's not even it's so far from the truth, and and that's why we're so divided right now. But the thing is, though, if you go walk out onto the streets, are we that divided? Not really. It's social media. It's the news. It's what you think. I don't know if that makes sense, but like, you know what I mean? I got friends I work with that probably hate Trump and probably think that I'm if I felt if I told them I liked him that I'd be racist but they know that I'm that I'm not you know what I mean and and I think that, right I think we're a lot less divided than we think we are but the news is trying to divide us because oh, for sure the more that we're divided the more they can control stuff 
Well, first of all, uh, to judge anybody by an immutable characteristic such as race is wrong. Absolutely. And that's what Martin Luther King brought us brought to popularity, right? I mean, he wasn't the first person, nor was he the last person to say it. But, you know, that's nothing. something you can't do anything about is not reason to get judged. Right. You can't do anything about it, right? Right. And that's why it upsets me when people here in the States, you know, make a big fuss about... Um, you know, racism and, and, and attitude towards blacks or other minorities. And it's like, how can you say that and be so passionate about here, which I'll give you, it's, it's a problem, but yet ignore the blatant, I would argue worse compared to right now, worse racism going on in China oh, against way black worse. people. That's way what I was worse. talking about they're earlier. Doing, they're doing stuff, what you were telling me earlier, they're doing stuff that's like borderline like what we were doing during the, like around the Civil War in the South. Well, not only, I mean, this, okay, here's the thing. I always tell people, cause, and I don't say this in a, like everything I ever say about China or Chinese people is always one, my opinion, but two, with reverence. Because I, I despite the misgivings of China and what they've done, like I still respect that country because of its history and its influence on the world, right? Right. So with all due respect, China, for sure. But they already were, like, really racist people towards blacks, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, when I went there four years ago, um, you know, well, people always ask me, like, what was it like being in China? What was it like being a, a, a white guy in China? And, you know, for someone like me, I had never been in a, well... Besides the, the Asian countries I went to before that, I had never been in a country where I wasn't part of this majority, right? So I never really thought about it. Well, in Japan, even though I mean, even though you're in the minority, I think Japan's a very Westernized. Oh, it is. Civ, you know, country. So I feel like you know, China. We can talk about Japan, different. but yeah, um, I'll, I'll probably get to it because I'll have to. I like to compare the two, but I love yeah, Japan. I've never been there, but I've, I love that country. I want to go there. China, like being in China, like for me was kind of like being a circus freak everywhere you walked you know people would stare at you and it wasn't like kind of like you know who the hell are you but it was just more of like a fascination because a lot of times especially if you're in uh, if you're not in the big cities or the places where the western culture is influenced you know people have never seen a white person before wow but the well, reason i brought it up think about it for me i didn't that that whole thing i just described like it something I observed, but I didn't really think twice about it, right? It didn't affect me. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it was worse for the black kids, the African-Americans that were on our trip, you know? Because they're, like, Chinese people, and they've been taught their whole life, like, oh, black people, and all the negative stereotypes associated with them have been taught to the Chinese people their whole life, right? Right. So they're like, holy crap, you know, even more so than for me, say, because they've seen me on, you know, TV or something or whatever, and... You know, like there's not as negative of a connotation with with whites as as there is with or as there are with you know blacks or whatever in China, but then now we're seeing that come to fruition because the whole coronavirus thing is first of all the Chinese government's telling people hey this this may not even have started in China this started in the U S it's those fucking Americans again and they believe they eat it up right, right. but then what's been going on which is like why this whole tangent started and why this whole podcast today was started which is it's they're forcibly quarantining uh africans in china just because they're african because they hate them i guess i don't know or they think that i don't know what the reason is i think but it's racism nonetheless and they're so they've been forcibly evicting africans because in china they can figure out like if they want to find somebody they can find you it's not like here where you have 
I mean, they could still find out your information, right? The CIA, if they if they want to or have enough reason. But for the most part, you're pretty much protected your your privacy. Yeah. Um, even though it's extremely infringed upon. But in China, you don't have any privacy, right? Yeah, so, you can fight back against it. And if you know, yeah. if you have a reasonable... But here, or there, if they want you, they just, they got it, you know? Yep. Um, you're fucked. So anyways, they know where all these Africans live, and they just ripped them out of their places where they had been paying rent or, you know, been living for 20 years in some cases. All these Africans, like from Nigeria and Ghana and South Africa, and they're forcibly quarantining them in these... Uh, 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 hospital or not hospitals um, aren't they hotels hotels and they told yeah. the people at the they told people like Chinese people I, I, this I heard they told Chinese people not to go to those hotels like weeks in advance because they told them that they're going to be putting the, the African people there and some of these African people are married to Chinese and have Chinese black kids you, you imagine know imagine that and they're separated from their families yeah and then and that's another thing that's i just, wanted to bring up is they, and, they cry and about actual, the separating yeah real quick sorry uh, to interrupt you. mexican immigrant families right right but yet they ignore that separation of families and by the way which is completely humane at our southern border what we do down there is completely humane and is not anywhere near comparable to what is going on in china well this this thing i always that i want to get across with that is that there were pictures that were circulating around the internet that a lot of people believe because they're stupid and sh- don't look into this shit like we've been haunting or hinting at. But there were pictures of kids in cages and people were actually saying and believing that Trump was doing that. But those was, pictures were from when Obama was president. Yes, yes. Look it up. Yep. Absolutely. 100% but the news blatantly fact. lies and says that, oh, this was Trump. This is because of Trump. There's yep. cages. No, that's from like 2000, whatever. This, yes. Tw- 2014, whenever Obama was president and actually, you know, had a hand in what was going on, like, to- like ordered yep. it or whatever. Yep. And it, that's the thing, man, is you, my if, if I could get any message out to somebody before I die, it's just think objectively, you know, use your brain um, and just don't trust the media you know i'm not saying don't watch the news i watch the news i watch tucker carlson whenever i can you know but i i take what tucker says and then when i find certain things he says that i'm interested in i will go research them and put a lot of work in to find out what if it's true or not and what the details of it are yeah and and if people just did that we would have a lot more stable of a society and a lot less problems i think tucker's and you know other people like greg gutfeld and whoever um I only really ever watch Tucker, but, you know, those people, I think, are a lot more unbiased than CNN, Don Lemon, you know, MSNBC, oh, that hoo-ha. Stuff. But, that stuff's terrible. You know, oh still, this is the thing, like you were just saying, you know, Fox has an incentive, too. They have a base yeah. that they're talking to, so they're mm-hmm. encouraged to be right bias, although not as much, in my opinion. But, so that's why you still, you know, if you're going to watch them, like I sometimes do, you know, you got to look out third-party sources, because th- they, too, have, you know, incentive to hype things up but the thing i don't like is they're always new those all those news news sources fox 2 they only report on the like what's the most important thing which i don't know if that's what they should be or not but you know you never hear about other things on on fox or cnn or anything other than the coronavirus or jeffrey epstein or whatever the newest trend is check this out and i forgot i don't know if it was the washington post or if it was Yahoo, or it might have been CNN or MSNBC or NBC. One of the major news networks uh, made a headline. I just saw it the other day. Uh, Coronavirus death toll now passes Vietnam War. And I'm like, what? 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 A, what? Shoddy journalism is that? Because every year our flu death 
count passes the Vietnam War every year. Mm-hmm. You know, but when they write stuff like that, they're you know norm, normal people that don't look into stuff that just believe what they read um, are like, oh my god. More people have died now from this than in the Vietnam War, and the Vietnam War was so bad. It's just the it's just the Russia <laughs> you know? thing all over again. Yes, that's what that is. Exactly. They're just trying to do, use any anything and everything to try and make his name look bad because they know they can't like out pla- out like uh, they know their candidate can't win on his own basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they're trying to just slash Trump's resume and his whole reputation as bad as they can. Yep. And what they don't realize. And you you can read this in the art of war, which that's not a I like Trump statement. That's a that's just what's going yeah, on. Yeah, that's where I'm and coming from too. And if you don't um, see it, then you're just not looking in the right places, or you're willfully ignorant because that's what they're doing. Yeah, and then that's where I'm coming from too. And you'll find this in the art of war. It says don't don't ever make your enemy the underdog. And what they've done, they did it in 2016, and they're doing it again. They're making Trump seem like the underdog. And yeah. therefore, and people always will back the underdog, and therefore he is going to win overwhelmingly. No matter what this coronavirus thing happens, no matter what happens, he's going to win overwhelmingly again in November because of that. And until they learn not to do that, they are not going to win elections anymore. And Shh. and that's that's that. Yeah, it's it's crazy. I wanted to read that passage from this book because um, it's about, or well, I could go back to the Kennedy stuff. Yeah, we could take a break. All right. We're going to take a, just a real quick short break. We're going to be right back. All right. Something cool that Oh, I forgot. We were going to we were talking about President uh Xi. Yeah. China and how he, he went to Muscatine. Dude, this is a crazy story, folks. Check this out. We I just found this out. Yeah, I just found this out uh, when we took our break. It's pretty fascinating. And of all places, you won't believe it. Um, well, basically what I was telling Colin earlier was um, President Xi Jinping of China, the current president, uh, went to Muscatine on like an expedition to learn about agriculture and how the U.S. does mass-scale farming. And he met with um, my sister-in-law's husband, who was like an executive for this one com- company. I forget what kind, but we found an article about it which mentions his name on CNN. Um, let me see. I for- he was like the president of some big company. But anyways, yeah. So Xi Jinping has like been to Iowa and was friends with my... Uh, what, is it, what would that be like? Father-in-law? I don't know. No. Anyways, my brother's uh, wife's uh, dad. Anyways. Yeah, and just for the, for the lay people on here that don't know who President Xi is, he's the, the main, the head guy in China that you yeah. see on the news. He's like the president of China. Yeah. He's, That's, the, he's the guy. This is a crazy story, really. Yeah, because we live really close to Muscatine. How far is it? Muscatine is 25-minute drive, and it's about 20 miles, if that, from where we're uh, currently is it podcasting shitty? From. I've heard a lot of people talk You know, here's here's the deal. Shitty. Here's the deal. All right. So I've played lots of shows in Muscatine, and I've actually had some of the best shows of my life, like fun-wise in Muscatine at the Mississippi Brew, and then playing um, the, uh, God, there was a big festival on the river that we do. I opened for Molly Hatchet down there. When oh, really? Yeah. Um, but so Muscatine is a really fun town, but Muscatine is a very, um, 
a lot of lower middle class, not all, just very lower middle class, river town, industrial kind of, you know what I mean? Uh, but it's not a shithole by any means, but it's not exactly like a, you know, sparkly, you know, it's nothing like Davenport. But it's you know? a good slice of like what Iowa is. Bro. Yes. Yeah. You get that's, a good. I think that's where he get the impression that uh, we were kind of alluding to. Yes. It, Muscatine, not to spend too much time on it, but Muscatine is one of those places where, so it's on the Mississippi River. So you get a dose of the kind of the downtown river town and then you drive up the hill and you're in the cornfields and you see Iowa. Yeah. So it's a good representation of both sides of Iowa. Definitely. Yeah, it's an interesting... But I just can't believe that when you told me that, like, imagining him being there of all places. Yeah, so you know? when you were sa- what are the implications of that? You were saying, you know, maybe he has a soft spot for us because he went to Iowa. You know, I was thinking that... In terms of, like, you know, animosity of China towards the U.S. Right, you know, I was thinking that, um, but it also could be, uh, uh, I don't know if this is the right term, but adversarial research, you know, kind of like... Uh, you know, if if you're a basketball player and you see a guy that you hate, but he's better than you doing what he does, you know, you want to figure out how he does it, steal his moves and improve on him. You know, so I don't right. know if that's what it is, but I just feel like, you know, maybe there is a little bit of a, you know, um, he doesn't hate the United States, but who the hell knows? I don't know. I just think it's rather interesting that Muscatine, Iowa is where he yeah. went, you know, and especially with the family connection with you. I mean, that's crazy. Yeah. Um, I don't know what I don't know the lineage of uh, leaders in China, but they've definitely had some interesting characters. Like it's always the, the Soviet leaders that are the most wacky, like right. Yeltsin. Dude, Yeltsin, dude, that guy. <laughs> um, I you know what we need to do next next podcast? We need to hook up the computer to where we can play audio from the computer onto our podcast. You guys have got to hear this. There's this clip on YouTube of Bill Clinton and Yeltsin, <laughs> Boris Yeltsin. It's right after uh, the Soviet Union collapsed and turned into Russia. And uh, it's Boris Yeltsin and Bill Clinton, and they're sitting there talking, and Yeltsin's giving a speech, you know, it's like a press conference, and he's talking to the press, but obviously he's talking in uh, whatever, is their language called Soviet? I Russian. Know, Russian? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know that sounds stupid. But anyway, and he basically, he like tells the, the uh, press to fuck off in Russian and Bill Clinton starts laughing so hard like I like like I like just hysterically laughing and he just does not stop for like a good 30 seconds and uh Yeltsin starts busting out laughing too yeah and and you can tell Yeltsin's drunk and and Bill Clinton's like you go go ahead and do it no you do it I can't do it as good as you what does he say I won't do it but he said uh you gotta get the right attribution on there (laughs) to the press like I Joe does it way better than me you gotta watch the video but the funny thing is is that it's great it's when I was in Armenia um my host mom uh my second host mom we were I showed her that video of Yeltsin and him laughing I showed her the video and she was like he's always a drunk you know so like yeah it, it was well known that he drank, you know, a lot. Yeah. Vodka. I bet it was straight vodka. Probably the best probably. vodka you'd ever had in your life. Yeah. You know, imagine that, you know, being the, like, basically the uh, the king of Russia and you're just chugging vodka and laughing with Bill Clinton. Yeah. Have you ever heard of uh, <laughs> um, places like Kazakhstan or, you know, those yeah, places? Absolutely. They never get any media coverage, but I've seen some videos on YouTube and... They're really interesting cities there, you know? I can't remember the names of them, but, like, the capital of Kazakhstan has, like, you know, this really weird alien-looking tower uh, in the really? middle of it. And they're the, it's an interesting country because it's a, you know, communist dictatorship, but, like, nobody ever, 
you never hear about it. In I'm the gonna news. tell you something. The only time I've ever heard, honestly, of Kazakhstan in, in like popular culture was when I watched the movie Air Force One, and I believe that the uh, the guys. Have you seen the movie Air Force One with Harrison Ford? No. It's a classic '90s movie. You got to watch it. It's great. Um, but there's a the, the terrorists, these uh, Soviet. Because see, back in the day, like you know how like now a lot of the bad guys in movies are are like Arab. Back in the day, it used to be the bad, it was. It's almost like propaganda in America. Back yeah. in the day, all the bad guys were always Russians, right? Yeah. Well, the, the guys who took over the plane, Air Force One, were from Kazakhstan, and that was the only okay. time I'd ever heard of that country until I got older. But yeah, so you're right about it. It never gets mentioned in like popular culture. I met a girl in Armenia who was um, from there, but she was like living in Russia, I think. Was she cute? <laughs> Duh. Dude, guys, Joe's been telling me the tales of some of the of some of the ladies over there, man. It sounds like I need to make a trip. In Armenia, it was crazy. Um, they have a, it, Armenian people like now are interesting as far as looks go because, well, I'll say that um, a lot of times I've see I don't have a huge impact or connection with any Armenian communities around here because there isn't really any. I just started going to this picnic. Uh, on Fourth of July, like the last couple of years that we found out about, right? It's small. You're the only person, and Joe and I have been, you know, like brothers for a very long time, and I didn't know till recently that you actually have Armenian uh, heritage in your in your DNA. Yeah, so and I you're went the only there. Person I know like that. Yeah. Um. So I don't have a huge connection with the the culture or anything, but um, a lot of people that do the program I was in do. I forget what what I was even going at with that. Um, we were just talking about well, we were talking about Kazakhstan and countries oh, right. that really yeah, don't the get variety, and then the girl, yeah. Oh, and, oh, right, my bad. Uh, so people have told me, in my little exposure, that I look like a real Armenian, quote unquote, and I never knew what that meant. But then when I went to Armenia, I, I of course learned a lot about the history, right? And it turns out, so if if somebody knows about the Armenian genocide, which you should Google if you if you've never heard of it. Uh, basically, the Ottoman Empire uh, during World War One killed one and a half million Armenian people just because they were Armenian. It's real Muslim. quick. It's one of those things like we were talking about earlier. One of those like genocide, mass murder things that does ne- it never gets the coverage that the uh, you know ones like. And I'm not minimizing like what happened in Germany in World War Two, you know, or what happened under Stalin. Not minimizing those at all. But this is another one of those examples of the media and the press and even the history books. You know, we were in history class all through high school. I, I don't, it might have mentioned it one time, you know, yeah. and it's a horrendous, but go ahead and explain. Well, during World War One, the Ottoman Empire, which was ran by Muslim sheiks, or not sheiks, but just, it was a Muslim Ottoman Empire, basically. They're Muslim. They didn't like the Armenians because they were Christian. They didn't want to convert, which, you know, like we were saying in the other segment, you know, that's what part of the Quran uh, enforces you to do is fundamental you know, Islam definitely. like convert people and stuff so uh, basically during it wasn't just in 1915 that's when the like official date is of the Armenian genocide but it was stuff was happening years before that and years afterward it was from like 1913 to 1928 that's when like the Ottomans were just f- killing Armenians uh, like mass murdering them shooting them burning them you know like hanging they hung like all the intellectuals all the you know uh smart mathematicians priests did they burn books uh i I think so yeah type of thing oh my god yeah because they they were just hell-bent on eradicating the armenians because they wouldn't comply and they needed a reason to like 
do it. They were at war, so they just, you know, kind of like what Hitler would end up doing with the Jews, like blamed their problems on them. Right. And then, like I said, killed a million and a half Armenians, and they did kind of like a trail of tears type thing too. They walked, they marched them out into the desert, and they would just like, you know, sh- make them dig their grave and shoot them. And there's there's crazy horror stories of survivors that tell shit. And the interesting part about it for me for me is my uh, my mom's grandmother, um, she and her husband were two that fled. Uh, my great grandfather fled in 1917. He went to Utah, presumably to uh, work in the salt mines because the uh, Mormons would uh, like sponsor Armenians to come because uh, they knew what was going on, right. and that was a way for them to get to America. So they'd sponsor them to join Mormons, the Mormon Church, and work. That way they could come here and escape persecution, right? right. So I think that's what my great-grandfather did. He came in 17, then went to New York City, and by the time uh, 19, uh, or no, he went in 13, and by the time 17 came around, his wife had gotten to New York, but she went from like Armenia to uh, Lebanon, then to France, and then to the United States. And from wow. what my mom's told me, uh, she was really, really traumatized by what she saw. I think she saw like some of her family members get killed in front of her, which Jesus happened a Christ. lot. Um, and so she had like really bad PTSD and never talked about it her whole life. And she had to like go to the mental institution and did stuff. She, did she ever make any writings or anything, any diary entries about it? I don't know. I don't think so. I think she wow. just suffered like her whole life and never talked to anybody that's about terrible. it. It's really sad. Yeah. See, and I was going to ask you. And that's uh, like, that's my connection with Armenia and everybody has a story cause there's this huge diaspora, but the, and that's the kind of the point is what, of what I brought, why I brought it up, which is when, pe- when people were saying you look like a real Armenian, they were saying like, that's what people looked like before the, the 1915, because people, I mean, people had been killing Armenians even way before that. Right. Um, well, they're a Christian country in the middle of the most densely populated Muslim, you know. Yeah. And this is not anything against Muslims, but, you know, back then, fundamental, you know, Islamic, you know, the Ottoman, you yeah. know, type thing. So. Anyways, so um, the Armenians, not only did they suffer mass losses of people uh, during that time, but um, anyways, because so many people either died or fled, um, the people that were there before they fled they looked like me so they had you know kind of darkish skin i'm only a quarter so i don't really have the skin tone but like you know caucasian looking right i look western european maybe or maybe a little with european or uh middle east or something anyways olive yeah olive (laughs) but so the people like that left or were killed and then the people that came back were and rehabited re-inhabited the area afterward were people from Turkey, people from Azerbaijan, more like Mediterranean looking people. That's why nowadays in Armenia, uh, people have like really olive skin and dark hair and dark eyebrows and green eyes. Right. So. Right. Go ahead and hit that again. Hold on. Hit it again. Yeah. Okay. Got got ourselves a bad cable. I'm going to replace that one. Yeah. But continue. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, Armenia was just such an interesting country that I didn't know anything about, but it's it's kind of like involved in all of the major events of world history, but you just didn't know it. That's kind of what I've seen. Right. And Turkey, like. Turkey was the Ottoman Empire. Yeah. And have they recognized the genocide yet? Oh, no. They deny it to this day. Still. Yeah. People, in fact, I think it got canceled this year, but people uh, in um, Los Angeles every year, uh, they, they uh, march 
uh, on the Turkish embassy and like demand that they recognize the Armenian genocide. Wow, yeah. I, it's surprising to me that they don't. It reminds me of Ahmadinejad, and I don't know if he's still in. I don't think he is still in charge over in Iran. But Ahmadinejad wouldn't recognize the Holocaust, and he said that it never happened. Whoa! And it reminds me very much of that, and I just that's that's crazy. Um, yeah, they they. I wish I could uh, have gone to one of those marches, but I went to Armenia, of course, and um, I stayed in Yerevan, which is the capital. And when I was there, um, I went to the memorial. They have a, it's kind of like a big fire pit on the top of this hill. Right. Um, but you have to go on the outside. It's got these like it's kind of like a cone and you go down in there and then there's a fire pit and there's a that's the eternal flame and then there's like a wow. spire right next to it and it's on the top that's of this cool. hill so you can see the whole city and then they have a museum which was like one of the most thorough and museums i've ever been to right kind of like it reminded me of when i was in nagasaki or hiroshima and saw the museums there they're like that's something that i've super always in depth yeah and that's that's another one of those places we were mentioning like Dealey plaza ground zero earlier i've always wanted to visit um uh, Nagasaki, or um, is now, do, is it correctly pronounced Hiroshima? No, I think it's is Hiroshima. It, is it but Hiroshima? Hiroshima is like the how we bastardize the word. Yeah, because I want to say it right. Because I, I hate when people mispronounce. I, I don't words. know for sure, to be honest, but I, I think it's Hiroshima. But I've always wanted to visit there because that still to this day, is the, those two places are the only places in the world that nuclear weapons were actually used during war, and I just. I've always wanted to visit there and, and just and, and see see it, you know what I mean? And there and obviously, I mean, I know it was 70, 76 years ago, but there still has to be some survivors, you know? And I would love, obviously, I don't think it'll ever happen, but I would love to be able to sit and talk with a survivor um, and or just hear their story, you know, about that day. I mean, can you imagine? I think there are survivors. I remember, I think... Well, that- I mean, shoot, somebody who's, you know, 85, 86, 87 years old would... You know, that was a kid, 10, 11 years old then, would be able to remember it. Yeah. You a know? lot of Japanese people do live a long time, too. Wow. Yeah. Um, Any interesting uh, little anecdotes from, you know, that museum or that trip to those cities that you could recall that really okay. stick out to well, you? Well, I'll talk about, I could talk about both. Um, we went to Hiroshima first, and that was, uh, the city itself is like... Where is that in relation to Tokyo? Um, it's southwest. I don't know how many miles, but probably like I don't know a couple hundred miles and had they already firebombed Tokyo at this point uh so, yeah okay so this was alright the one that killed 120,000 people yeah, yeah they already did that there's back to Curtis LeMay the guy we were talking about yeah. earlier yeah and he wanted to just keep doing that but, yeah I mean I and that killed more people than both bombs yeah I mean but, I, uh, I credit Curtis without changing subject too fast I credit Curtis with you know getting America through some really tough wars and helping us win, but Curtis LeMay definitely was not a good guy, especially when he was working for JFK, but go ahead. Um, I was just saying, so in Hiroshima, when we first got there, it was beautiful. That's the first thing I you know, noticed is this, you kind of had this expectation, I guess, that it was going to be looking shitty, maybe. Right. But it, this was just a beautiful, new, vibrant city. Is that dome still there? Yeah, that the I think it was a library or something. That's like one of the few structures that withstood the blast and that's definitely there uh matter of fact we went and stood like across this little river from it so i don't think you can go in it but we stood basically right next to it right and it's along the river um and then we went we uh we went to the they call it a peace park so not only is there a museum but there's like monuments all over the the grounds 
uh, to, you know, once to the Korean people that died that day, once to the Australians that died, once to the Americans. Then they have that's these so different cool. things. And then they have like uh, this thing in the middle that's um, all these uh, origami swans or something. Um, and because wow. these kids made them uh, to like commemorate the attack or something. And so that's like a symbol now of Hiroshima is this uh, origami. I've always wanted to see real something. Japanese origami. It's and so you, they cool. make them and they have like a huge th- a depository of like thousands of them that people, because you make one, you can make one and put it in there. You know, it's that type of thing. Right. Um, can I ask you a question about this? What? Were there American like POWs in those cities when they bombed them that we had to yeah. kill? Wow. There were Americans that were, I believe there were, I don't know about Hiroshima and Nagasaki particularly, but there were definitely Americans over there that died from bombing. Wow. That's, that's just unbelievable. But, you know. Again, back to what we were talking about earlier. I mean, can you imagine like that? Because in our lifetimes, even Vietnam wasn't. Can you imagine being alive for a full-scale war like that? You know what I mean? Like, and, and, you know, a lot of us still have grandparents that, were, that are alive or, you know, that lived through it and can remember it. And I just, like I said, I urge everybody listen and talk to them about it and learn about it because it's just absolutely fascinating. And uh, I just, it's unbelievable. You know, and that wasn't that long ago. Yeah, World you know, War II is unbelievable. Yeah, and 75 years, guys, it seems like a long time, but it's not. You know, 75 years ago is not that long, especially in, you know, in terms of history. JFK, I think it was during his moon speech, um, I can't quote it directly, but he had this analogy about time and about how the you know the last hundred years it was like equivalent to thirty seconds in the span of history. Oh yeah, I remember that. And I just think you know people need to remember that that wasn't that long ago, and it's just incredible. You know, not in a good or bad way, just incredible what the word actually means. You know, just incredible. I like thinking about how amazing it is that you know a lot of the times when you watch the shows. Well, this is how I learn about it is watch by uh, partially, you know, by watching World War Two in color and other such shows. Mm-hmm. But like you always hear about, you know, OK, the German army's fighting the Soviets on the, you know, at this city. Right. Like Stalingrad or something or are they going to march to Stalingrad? And it's like 70 kilometers. Right. You always hear that kind of stuff. But you have to. It's amazing to think that uh, the soldiers just walked. They had to walk. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? It's unbelievable. And, and in the middle of winter. Yeah. I mean, and that it, was, oh my God. Most of the, most of the German army wasn't, um, you know, like a, a car or something. It was mostly on foot. So they had all, all had to walk. But then the recent, you know, I don't know why I think it sounds, it seems like it's been a new discovery. At least I haven't heard about it as much until recently, but like, uh, they had, I can't remember the dextrin maybe. Is this drug that Dexa, the... Uh, dexedrine. So what dexedrine yeah, is... They were giving that to all the, the uh, Wehrmacht soldiers. Yeah, Dex- That's why they could... Uh, sorry, they, that's why they could, how they could do Blitzkrieg, which was like three days of fighting without mm-hmm. sleep. Yeah, so dexedrine was the predecessor to Adderall. Um, dexedrine is basically almost pure amphetamine. Um, so yeah, it's the basically the modern equivalent of, of Adderall, but a little bit stronger. Um, but And that, that's interesting. I'm going to get cable, that damn thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's see, and that's something that I had heard about, but I never really knew that they did that. But that makes sense. Well, that's what they were saying on uh, the new World War Three or World War Two in color. It's crazy. But um, I also I, I mentioned that book earlier um, about the propaganda. That book's called War Without Mercy, and uh, it's basically like I said. It's kind of it kind of focuses on the states and Japan. But, you know, the other allies like Britain were involved in it, too. Um, 
but it, it did a really good job of breaking down or just actually not breaking not only breaking down but just exposing like a lot of the stuff involved with the propaganda like i said that video that they would show the the marines before going to to fight the japanese they'd you know show them this video and i i read about the japanese would get like a little brochure uh they'd each get an individual every soldier would get a brochure that had like a i don't know if it was like a, a story or a poem or something but it's like something about you know you're gonna fight you're fighting for the right cause to kick out the foreign devils you know basically their equivalent of Propaganda. The racist stuff that they would say about the Japanese, you know, mm-hmm. they'd say like, "Yo, you're going to fight the monkey or whatever," you know, like a lot of right. that kind of stuff. And it showed pictures of old um, cartoons. That was really cool. Like the old, like magazine covers, like the New York Times would have, you know, like a picture of a a monkey with like glasses and uh, a bayonet, you know. And right. it's crazy to think about that stuff. Yeah. Because now you think of the New York Times, and if they had that on their cover now, like whoever did that would get fired oh yeah i mean if you even think about and i'm not uh um i'm not going to condemn them um but i definitely am not going to praise them at all it's just it's just something in history that it is what it is and it happened but it's crazy to think about that we had the japanese internment camps you know i mean it's you know i obviously i think looking back on it because hindsight is always 2020 it was probably unnecessary um, and wrong, but it's interesting to think about that we did that during the war because we didn't know, you know, if Japan, you know, if there was people in the United States that were going to start, you know, basically the modern day equivalent of terrorist attacks. Well, there were ch- Japanese, like, oh, I hate, I don't want to use the word spy, but there were people that were there, you know. Right. There was a guy in Pearl Harbor that took pictures of it that was a Japanese informant. What was the, whole, you know, I was going to ask about that. Let's talk about that for a quick second. So I know a decent amount about Pearl Harbor, I think, but. Why did they do that? What was why were they so interested in in getting America involved? Was it because they wanted to take over America or was it because they wanted to help Hitler and weaken America so Hitler could take over America, or, you know, and defeat the UK? What was the deal with Pearl Harbor? I never understood why out of nowhere that just happened. Well, the the one thing about the the Axis powers versus the Allied powers is that Hitler and Hirohito never really talked like when like Churchill and, and Roosevelt did. Right. They didn't cooperate, which ultimately led to their demise. That was one of the reasons, right? Right. Like Hitler would Hitler not know proud. that Mussolini was going to go, oh, what, you, you invaded Ethiopia? What the hell? You know, it was yeah. like that. Yep. Because they didn't talk to each other. But uh, I think it's both because um, the Japanese, uh, this is – like the most fascinating part about that book what that I was reading and and uh basically the japanese um kind of their attitude about their their worldview uh up until and through world war 2 was and when i say there i don't know if it's the entire population or most of the entire entire population because the japanese have been you know a pretty um, the, the most homogenous society for like their entire history right um so there's, I guess, some merit in, you know, thinking on the same page more than, say, us. Well, and also if you think about it real quick, you know, and I often tell people this, same thing with Germany. Um, I'll, I'll, like majority, I'm sure majority of the population of like Germany and Japan during these times were good people. They just, they, the propaganda, they were just raised to believe a certain way, you know. And so I, I just, I just wanted to add a little anecdote that, uh, you know, you definitely, um, 
she, like I understand, I can historically see how the population, you know, felt like we were the evil ones or how, you know, how German, the Germans were convinced that like the Jews were the problem and stuff. And obviously it's horrendous, but I, mm-hmm. you know, it's interesting to think about how good people could be convinced of such terrible things. And it, it's a good lesson, you know, to remember that because like we said, 75 years ago, isn't that long ago and it could happen again today. Yeah. Um, you, the, the thing I forgot to say when I was talking about the genocide earlier was that Hitler is, you know, you can look it up. Hitler said, in a speech one time, like, who remembers the Armenians? Nobody, basically, is what he said. And he was talking about wow. how they had that genocide happen to him, but nobody even cared about it in 19, whenever, you know, 39 or whenever he said that. And that was fresh after. I mean, that's yeah. 20 years after. Because, and he was referencing it because he, you know, had this plan to eradicate the Jews, which was based on the same, you know, principle, which is, you know, eradicate this race or this ethnic group just because that they are who they are and no other reason, right? Right. Um, but he basically, you know, that happened before the word genocide was was even around, the Armenian thing. But anyways, uh, back to Japan, yeah. Um, so they basically what I was saying earlier was is they they had this kind of um, creation myth that you know their aunt some there was a royal family you know like Hirohito the emperor yeah he was from this royal family who were the descendants of 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 uh, you know God basically. Right. And the Japanese flag, you know how it's a, it's the rising sun. That's the sun is the god, is their god basically. Right. And so that's why they have it on their flag, you know, and and in all sorts of rituals and shit. But um so they had this kind of view of the world as like we are divine, everyone else is inferior. Just inferior, yeah. Not only did they feel that way about other Asian people especially, but they felt it about, you know, the west of course too. And so they had just as much, I, I would say, a more, probably more hatred for, for Western people than, than we had for them. Right. Um, but like I said, it's, if I had to just pick an answer, I'd say equal. But anyways, yeah, it was crazy. And also, uh, I believe in the, in the back of the, the head of the Japanese government's mind, there may have been plans to take over the U.S. Because I was telling you about that book that, so in the book I was reading, it talked about how they found in a Tokyo bookstore in like 1981, they found oh, yeah, this, uh, me this. this, they found this, um, one of, of a six volume, like series of, it was like thousands of pages, right? Yeah, It was like 4,000 and some odd pages. And it was a, a Japanese government top secret, uh, case that they'd opened to like come up with a plan to repopulate the world with Japanese people or not repopulate, but populate the world with Japanese people. So they were for, it's called the, the, um, uh, something sphere. Uh, so I'll, I'll think of it, but they had this idea that they were going to take over, uh, the rest of Asia first and they're going to send, you know, this many Japanese people there. They'd get jobs, get houses, have children, and then set up schools and, you know, basically Colonize, right? But, but not colonize because they're not taking it over. They're just building a pocket. They had detailed plans, and like I said, this was just one of six that they found. That's crazy. Because the Japanese burnt everything when they knew that shit was going. When it was over. When it was, yeah, when it was over, they started burning all the secret documents. I mean, everything that you've ever heard about the USA or the CIA. I mean, uh, you know, they were doing that same type of stuff right. back then. Well, all, every every powerful, you know, modernized powerful country has a quote-unquote CIA type thing and um, it's just uh, it's history is amazing 
I, you know, and I love that we can sit and have conversations about this and that people, you know, the listeners that are listening to us, um, you know, dig this stuff because it's so, it's so important to know. Um, it's fascinating and it just keeps repeating itself. It too. is. That's, that's the, the thing. thing. That's why I keep saying to, to people, you know, especially our age, I keep bringing that up. But, you know, like I said, 75 years ago is not that long ago. My grandmother, you know, was seven years old when that happened. And she, you know, she remembers when they dropped the bomb. Not that long ago, you know, I just turned 25 and 20, I, you know, 20 years ago doesn't seem that long ago to me, you know, so the older I get, the more I realize that, you know, that's not a long time and we just have got to be cautious and you have to be aware and you've got to be educated about everything, you know, and don't ever get indoctrinated, you know, even if it's your parents point of view, you know, like growing up like with politics, right? So like my mom uh, is a, you know, was a union Democrat growing up. My dad's always been a uh pretty, I don't want to say hardcore Republican, but a conservative guy. And I took from both sides what I thought made sense to me and what I felt was the right thing and kind of molded them into how I feel about the world. And I think that, and I'm not saying everybody should be like me because that wouldn't be a good idea, but I think that everybody just needs to remain objective, you yeah. know, and always question everything and form your own opinions based on your own research always because history does repeat itself. And always be open to being wrong. Yes. And or be, or your belief being like, even if it's something as steady as say gravity, like even I think the most val you know valid or valuable scientists would would still be open to the possibility of all that being proven wrong and something better coming. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think science proves equally as much. I think science proves just as much of what we know as it does what we don't know. You know, and I think that's the beauty of science, you know, and I, and I think that that uh, is, it's a wonderful thing, you know what I mean? Because it creates, you know, because you can have this happy medium of faith and then also science and have, you know, have them both. Kind of, you can have both of them, you know, you don't have to choose one or the other. Um, but it's just, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm not really going to go anywhere with that topic, but I just want well, to add just that note. you're just exercising the freedoms that people in China don't have. Yes. Which is what we were getting at earlier. Yeah. Absolutely, you know, and I, uh, I love this country, and I mean, I can't sit here and act like I know all about the world because Joe, Joe has traveled all over the world. I have not. I've only been to Canada, and it was when I was a little kid before nine eleven when you could just go over the border. So I don't have a big world perspective, but I just have read a lot over the years, and um, I, I feel really informed about a lot of things. And I just think that, you know, even when the country, our country, the U.S., seems like it's you know, chaotic and it's going to shit, it's still a pretty amazing place, you know. But, yeah, but yeah so, I, any uh, any other cool stories you want to tell? Well, I, I didn't get to it earlier. It's not much of a story, but uh, when I was in Armenia, when I was living with my second host family in the apartment, I'd walk to work every day, and I worked in an area where it was, like, a lot of high-profile buildings, so there was, like, the science academy with all the different you know math history biology chemistry geology institutes right and then like across the street from that was the i think it was where the parliament was so it was kind of like a big street marshall bugramion avenue is what it's called right and so i'd walk along it every day and i didn't realize it at first until i started looking at the the pictures but um one of the buildings i would walk by was the chinese embassy right and on the wall they had in this one section they had a like a glass box and they had pictures in there and one of them was a picture of pandas in this panda reserve and it didn't say it said something about it like a 
you know, where it was or whatever, but it was in Chinese, so I couldn't read it. But I looked up, I, I think they had the name of it, and I looked up the reserve, and I'm pretty, I'm like 99% sure it's the same one I went to when I went to China. Because we went to a panda reserve in Chengdu. Wow. And that one said it was in Chengdu, so I'm assuming it's the same one. That's awesome. But yeah, that was really cool. So I was like, I've been to that, you know, on the picture at the outside the Chinese embassy in Armenia, in That's Yerevan. That's sweet. Yeah, you know, you've, uh, that uh, music you showed me the other day about, uh, it was the Japanese, uh, what was the, what's, what's the style of it? What's the classification of that music that you showed me the other night? What do you mean? Uh, you know how you went to that theater? Oh, that was uh, Kabuki Theater. I don't know what the music's called, but... Um, so, I, I just... I, so, I'm a musician. You knew the instrument. Yeah. So, like, a, I'm a guitar player, and I'm a musician, and Joe and, I, Joe and I are both producers, and that's what I do for a career, and Joe introduced me to some of this Japanese music, and a lot of Eastern music, and instruments like the Kodo and stuff, and uh, it's just... Uh, just to be real quick about it, it's just blowing my mind and really kind of opening my horizons up to uh, a lot of that stuff because it's cool to me because I, as much as I love because it is my favorite rock and roll and pop music you know the, the real American thing you know that's only been around for 50, 60 years and to hear styles of music that have been going on for centuries and centuries even thousands of years is a very cool thing yeah. you know it was awesome and I, I definitely um, I want to go to Japan so bad someday it's, that's know? one of the coolest parts about the culture is that it's been not only is it old, but some of their most intimate uh, forms of art or artistry or, uh, you know, like martial arts or, or um, calligraphy or any, any yeah. craftsmanship has been preserved. A lot of them have been sword making. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, that's really cool. I remember being a kid and uh, Yu-Gi-Oh was an extremely popular thing when I was a kid. And I, I fell in love with Yu-Gi-Oh before Pokemon. I mean, I ended up getting into Pokemon, but Yu-Gi-Oh was like my thing. And I fell in love with anime, and the thing that I most fell in love with was, was, was like, the Japanese letters and the writing and the way that the letters were designed. And I used to, like, practice how to draw them and, and like, really? everything. Like, yes, yeah. I used to draw anime all the time. I can, still do, I can still draw a pretty damn good anime face with the eyes and stuff, but I, uh, I've just always been kind of enamored with Japanese culture. And like I just told you in the car um, when we were on break, I definitely want to make a trip over there with you someday. You know, cause, it's such an amazing place. And all my musician friends, um, there's a couple of musician friends that I know that have been quite successful and toured the world. And um, they've said that there's two places in the world where once you make music that they like, they never forget you. And it's Japan and it's over in the UK. See, in America, you write a hit song. If you don't come out with three more hit songs, you know, you, you get forgotten about. Whereas in those two places, I've always heard that once you, you know, write a hit song, your fan base is always there and they'll always love you. And, and I've always found that interesting about those two places. And I don't know why that is. I don't know if it's because their cultures go back so far. But I just, uh, and like I said, I just want to top it off. That's just one of the places that I definitely want to visit and more play. I would love to play a show over there. My it's God. an amazing place. That reminded me of in that World War II in color, the new one. They talked about how uh, the Japanese before and during World War II, they loved Babe Ruth. They're like obsessed with Babe Ruth, apparently. Really? And uh, then when World War II was going on, the U.S. knew that. So they sent Babe Ruth over to like talk to the emperor. He got to meet For him. For real? Yeah, something like that. I don't know if he got to meet the emperor. Like but Hirohito. They, they sent, well, I don't know if it was him that Babe Ruth met or if he met with just people. Like a, I don't like know. Like an under. But they sent Babe Ruth over to Japan <laughs> to like 
lighten up the tension. Think think about this for a second. And no offense to Babe Ruth, because he's a legend, and he's the most iconic baseball player ever. But we sent a chunky, alcoholic, badass baseball player over to Japan to ease World War II tensions. Does it get much more American than that? Maybe a cheeseburger. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, man, that's crazy. Yeah. Dude, the other hey, thing... Oh, real quick, I gotta tell you this. This has nothing to do with that. But have you ever heard the story about Elvis meeting Nixon? No. Okay. You've got to look this up on the internet to the listeners. It's it's worth the, it's worth the look. But to keep it in short, because this reminded me of that. So um, Elvis, you know, was a drug addict, a prescription drug addict. But he had this fantasy of he wanted to be like a law enforcement agent, and he wanted to work for the DEA because this was this was in this this was in the latter part of his life in the you know in his career. Um, this when Nixon was president. And he wanted so badly to meet Nixon, and he wanted to get a badge, a DEA badge. Isn't his daughter married to, or was she? Wasn't his daughter married to Michael, Michael Jackson? Jackson? Yeah, yeah, for like, yeah, for like two minutes. <laughs> um, but anyway, so somehow uh, Elvis, uh, the, the the story that I heard recounted was from like one of Elvis's aides or assistants, was that they were on a plane, or no, one day Elvis just decided he was going to fly to Washington D.C. because he wanted to meet Nixon and he wanted to talk to him about the war on drugs. So Elvis books a plane, or not books a plane, he got on his, because he had his own plane. They get on his plane, and they fly to Washington, D.C., and they get in a rent-a-car, and they drive to the, literally to the White House, and Elvis walks up to the front gates, and Secret Service is like, you know, <laughs> like, what's up? And he's Elvis. So they literally let him in. They let Elvis in, because he's Elvis. That's power. And Yeah, seriously, like, it doesn't get any more powerful than that. They let him in. And Nixon meets with him for like a half hour, and apparently they sat and talked about the war on drugs and music and stuff. And uh, El- there's a picture of those two in the Oval Office together. And Elvis is in full Elvis. Look it up real quick on your phone. I will. Elvis is in full Elvis garb. I'm talking the shades, the fucking the flared pants, the boots, the hair, everything. Look at the pop collar. Can you see it? Yeah. Holy Dude, shit. Yeah. Look at that. Yep. In the Oval Office. And, wow. Uh, and I That's don't. Cool. And I think I'm not sure if he got the badge or not. I can't remember. But it's just a really cool story about, you know, like random, you know, when like when when like pop culture and, you know, like historical world figures like collide for no reason at all. Like, you know, it's a pretty interesting story. You can look it up on YouTube. I think there's a little doc about it. I don't know much about Elvis, but I started listening to his music more and more lately and I like it. You know, Elvis, um, what Elvis did. So there, Elvis, um, kind of in the same way, like with guitar, like, um. Elvis listened to a lot of black music growing up, you know, like the Delta Blues. And no, I'm serious. Like, I know that sounds like a weird term to say, but it's true. Back then, you know, things were so racist, you know, even in the northern, you know, states where they weren't racist, everything was racist in some way back then. And the radio stations would not play black music. Well, black music was awesome. And wasn't it uh, it, like Motown or was like not Motown, but like jazz and stuff, right? It was, yeah, like jazz and it was a combination of jazz and blues. So it was like rock and roll, which would form into like your Chuck Berry type stuff. Right. right? And it was awesome. It was way cooler. You should hear some of the bullshit white artists from back then. It was trash that they were playing on the radio. Right. Well, Elvis grew up obviously in the South and was around all this amazing music. And so Elvis got all of his influence from all of these black musicians and you know, burst onto the scene and became this, you know, the most famous rock star ever with his dance moves and his music. But if you listen to it and then you go listen to his influences, Elvis was just kind of doing his own thing with their stuff. And so Elvis, what Elvis did was brought black music 
to the mainstream to the white audience to the white audience and and that's how rock and roll was created and that's why all of us that play music owe a debt to elvis presley even more to the music to the black musicians before him but to elvis for doing that because he changed music forever and for the better you know um kind of in the same way like you know like hendrix with guitar and Eddie van halen with guitar you know um elvis is one of those figures that uh transcended time like put the and, and, and art form to and the, the Beatles, level where it wasn't too. going any fo- any back. Yes, absolutely. You know, brought it forward, and Elvis was just and dude, he was badass. I mean, like even if you listen to songs like Suspicious Minds, <laughs> like even if you're not into that kind of music, like it's real, dude. And when you hear Elvis, you're like, that's Elvis. Yeah. What do you think of Roy Orbison? Um, iconic. You know, I don't. Listen. I like a lot of his songs. Too. Yeah, I think Roy Orbison's iconic. He's kind of I consider him like a. A little more edgier version of Frankie Valley, um, you know. Obviously, his voice is totally different, but that kind of singer or that kind of musician. Um, and then you get my favorite, you know. And like I said, I'm a rock guy, but like I love the the country guys from back then. Johnny Cash to me has always been just the most badass, like like just the realist, you know. And I know Willie is too, and Waylon, but you know, John lived through some shit, and John wrote about that shit, and John went through a lot of pain. And he was the man in black, dude. Like, it was like, it was so weird because he's like the most heavy metal dude ever. (laughs) And he was just saying these country songs that are heavier than any metal song you could ever write. You know what I mean? He had a weird power. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like, you listen to some of these uh, these old Johnny Cash country songs, and they're heavier than the hardest rock and heavy metal song you could ever hear. Uh, You know, Zeppelin was good at that, too. What's the the name? Was it... is Folsom is, the, is that the prison? Yeah, uh, that's uh, in yeah. California? He played a show there. Yeah, in the Bay. Yeah, like or, no, Fol- tr- no, Folsom. So my aunt lives. Yeah, because I think it's a different name of one I'm thinking of. But he played. You're thinking of San Quentin. Yeah, when he played at San Quentin, uh, Merle Haggard apparently was in was San Quentin in San prison, Quentin? like a prisoner that's that heard awesome. Johnny Cash play. Can you imagine yeah. them seeing each other. I mean, you know they knew each other. Um, but yeah, so yeah, my aunt lives in Sacramento, and Folsom Prison is right outside. She actually she lives in Folsom. Right. But um. Yeah, dude, Johnny was the man. Yeah, Merle Haggard's from, like, Oil City, California, which is, like, a town from, you know, those right. days. Right, yeah, and, you know, a lot of those, you know, music today, like I said, I love pop music, me and Joe both, you know, we write pop music, we love it, we, you know, love EDM and all sorts of different stuff, but there is something to be said about uh, the, um, what's the word I'm thinking of, the genuine quality of some of that older music where it, it was just so real you know like i said i don't listen to country music a whole lot but when i li- but i listen to johnny cash right because it's just real you know <laughs> outlaw yeah you know absolutely yeah that's kind of si- similar to how i feel about just that kind of country music versus what's out there now i mean i kind of my line is like 90s like Glenn Campbell like I can listen to some of his stuff he was a badass I might be bad I might be wrong on those dates but yeah anyway anything before that I I, I can dig like I said I like Willie I like Waylon Merle Haggard right but anything after that I just can't vibe with it well what's happened so I lived in Nashville for three years and one of my really good friends is a really highly connected he's a he's a stylist but he's super connected in the business and I got to be around a lot of um, influential and important people in the music business and stuff and meet them and kind of see for the first time in my life how the music business works. And Nashville, especially at the time, which was like 2015, um, was the hub of all pop music, 
you know, other than like the, you know, like Ariana Grande type pop music, like, you know, country was the big thing. Mm-hmm. And I got to see how the industry worked. And what has happened basically was that after September 11th, this is my theory anyways, after September 11th, um, Toby Keith came out with that, we'll put a boot in your ass. It's the American way. Hey, Uncle Sam song, right? And then Big and Rich came out with Save a Horse, Ride a Cowboy. And there was like this, the, the first thing was wow. the, the patriotism. And then Big and Rich came out with Save a Horse, Ride a Cowboy. And it was like this rock and roll country thing. And it kind of turned it into almost like pop culture. And so it's just slowly kind of developed into what it is now. And I mean, no offense to anybody who likes it, but it's just become bubblegum bullshit pop. It's, you know, bad yeah. rock with, as Tom Petty once said, it's bad rock with a fiddle and a banjo in it. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's turning into a parody of itself, kind of like how in the late 80s, you know, a lot of my favorite uh, 80s music, I love 80s. I mean, I'm a rock guitar player, but some of those shitty ass 80s hair bands in the late 80s ruined it for the rest of us because it got so cheesy. And that's what's happening to country music right now. And I think there's going to be a big change of the guard here pretty soon. And I don't know what genre it's going to be. I don't know who it'll be, but it always happens. Every you know few decades, something comes around that changes everything. And I think we're on the cusp of that. So, what do you think? Do you think there's an uh, inherent difference, or is one or one better than the other in in terms of uh, genres of music that have like a period of history, a certain specific period that they existed, or ones that are like? that are still going to this day well you I know th- what i mean by that i are you talking about just like comparing genres like like comparing like 80s music with today like yeah that like type of thing yeah or like 80s music to well 80s music to like rock rock's been around and it's still ha- it's changed but it's been around it hasn't gone anywhere whereas like punk that was kind of a thing like and a it phase, died right same with disco yeah certain things um, disco just died yeah i mean people make it nowadays but prefer the most part it was gone yeah van, Ha- went. van halen and ozzy like killed disco and i'm not saying that in like a braggadocious or good way but like that's what happened in the same way that nirvana killed 80s rock so i mean it's all subjective right like you can't say one's better than the other but i just happen to have this thing for 80s music um because it was the reason i like the 80s so much is because you know technology had finally reached a point where it was like really really good and so you had this perfect mix of technology and, but you still had to be a badass musician to make good songs. So you had all these badass musicians with this awesome, just beautiful techno, like digital production and, you know, everything melded perfectly together. So, you you know, it, and that's why I like the 80s so much because you have such good production, but you also have such good musicianship. Whereas now it's just kind of like any Joe Schmo can you know if he has a Mac can download Logic Pro X and you know learn how to program MIDI notes and you know he's a quote unquote beat maker producer yeah <laughs> and they call themselves that and and they're they don't know what the hell they're doing and you know now some of them are geniuses you know what I mean I'm not saying they all suck like that but I'm saying that's you know music today um, it, it, it's good and bad number one it's good because it allows guys like you and me to have uh, you know technology in our bedrooms which would have cost two million dollars 20 years ago and so it allows us to be able to create the sounds and the music that we want but it also allows a lot more people to put a lot more shit music out so yeah. you know and i'm kind of getting off topic here but anyway I, I it's all subjective i you know it just depends on what you prefer you know because there's certain days where i'm in a zeppelin mood you know and i'm in a mood to listen to stripped down rock and roll you know, no filler, no, you know, no synth type stuff. Then there's other days where I want to sit and listen to Tears for Fears and I want to fucking tear that mic cable out of that microphone right now. 
Oh my God. There we go. Now it's good. But anyway, yeah, I, like I said, <laughs> it's it's just all a matter of opinion. But if I had to if I had to pick one, the '80s is my favorite decade because the thing about the '80s was every genre, like whether it was like rap, or rock and roll, pop, blues, jazz, like because Miles Davis was still alive. Every genre of music, all the stuff at the top, like all was all the pop stuff at the top was awesome. It was still really good, and that's what I love about the '80s. You know, it's just a perfect, in my taste, it was a perfect amalgamation of technology and musicianship, and it collided and gave us the fabulous decade that uh, that it was. And I feel it coming around again. That new single by The Weeknd, uh, uh, dude. Uh, what's is it? Blinding Lights. I don't know. I think it's the name of it. Blinding Lights. Like, dude, they use the Lynn drum machine, which is, you know, the 80s drum machine, the Prince drum machine. They use that. There's these big, big old beautiful synths on it. And I think 80s music, the sound is coming back. And that's good for guys like me. And I mean, I think you too, because you share a love for that stuff too, like I do. Because now the stuff that we write that sounds like that, uh, you know, people our age or contemporaries aren't like, ooh, that sounds like it's from the 80s. Now they're yeah. like, oh, wow, that sounds like, sounds like The weekend. That's always how it goes. Yeah, you know what I mean? So it's cool to me that the stuff that we like is starting to become popular again and sneaking its way back into pop culture. And I love that. You know, I can't wait to the moment where people can dress like Miami Vice again, and it's cool. Because if I could dress like that every day, fuck yeah, I would. I mean, like, for shows, dude. Like, I throw, like, if I'm playing a big show, like, I I always throw a little eyeliner on. I always do my hair. And I get judged for it. People are like, oh, you know, like, you're gay or you're feminine and all this. No, I'm not. I just fucking want to look cool. You know what I mean? Like, uh, and I, that's what I loved about the '80s, the '70s too. But uh, it's just cool to kind of see that stuff kind of starting to come back into, into fashion. So. Yeah, I like the '80s fashion for sure. It was it was bold. That's the yeah thing I liked about New York. Even today, when I went there, you know, people were just really bold with their fashion choices. Mostly younger people, and uh, you know, it's kind of like a lot of it is hipsters, but which I don't like per se but you know still it's it's respectable and that's genuine hipsters if you meet someone like it's the same thing with music or anything even if you if that's not your thing um I don't know what that was even if it's not your thing if you meet someone who genuinely like lives that I have respect for it so if I meet a real hipster who really is like genuinely a hipster I don't diss him but, you know, you got these guys that, you know, are growing these big old 1800s beards and stuff now and yeah. wearing the shirts and shit just to because to fit in with those people. Those are the people you can spot a mile away. And I'm like, dude, go, go figure yourself out. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And that, you know, that was part of the reason, like, when I lived in Nashville and I loved, like, I'm still so close to all my friends in Nashville. I still might live there again someday. You know, who knows? But I never felt like I fit in because... I dress the way that I dress, and I'm the guy that I am. And, I'll, you know, when I was down there, it was like all these guys were dressing the same. You know, it was like you had to dress a certain way to be in the music business and all this shit. And it was just really lame and, and really uh, homogenous. Is that the right word? If it's all the same, yeah. Yeah, it's just very homogenous and processed and just nobody was like, you know, themselves. You know, not I shouldn't say nobody because there's plenty of awesome, wonderful musicians and artists down there. But for the mainstream it was just really lame I, and I never felt like I fit in you know and that's what I loved about LA when I went out there um, number one because all my heroes you know cut their teeth out there and that's where all my favorite music was made for the most part and uh, but when I went out there like I felt like I'm an LA type of person you know like I could dress the way that I wanted to dress and walk down the street and I felt like I was at home 
Now, my dad lived in L.A. in the 80s, and he's like, don't you ever move out there. It's a shithole. And I'm like, look, I get it. I know that there's parts of L.A. that suck, but L.A. just has always been like Mecca to me. You know, but I have to visit New York. I, the, you know, I've been everywhere in the U.S., but Seattle and, you know, as far as the big cities in New York. So I got to. You've been I, to Phoenix? I got to go see New York. Well, I didn't, didn't really classify Phoenix as one of the big cities, but I should, probably should. <laughs> what Sorry. about San Francisco? Yes. You've been there? Yeah. What about, no. Uh, have you been to Dallas? Yes. What about Houston? Yes. Really? Yep. Oh, okay. Two of those were layovers, but I still count. That doesn't count. Come on. I, okay, I've been to Iceland then. See? A couple times. Exactly. No, it doesn't count. Yeah, San Francisco and Dallas were layovers. No. I just lost cred for that. Yep. But the other ones, though, I have been to. I just I haven't been to New York City, though. New York's fucking awesome. Yeah. I bet it is. Way cool. In my opinion, way better than L.A. Is it really? Yeah. You spent some time in L.A., right? Yeah, I okay. got family that I lived there. I, dude, I went to the Rose Bowl and watched USA play Mexico. Did you really? <laughs> yeah, in Chivas. 2013, I think, or 2015. One of the two. But yeah, that was cool. Yeah, I think it was 15. Well, I'll have to go check out New York because I got... stayed with my cousin. I got a feel for New York because I'm a big fan of Billy Idol. Um, I've always loved Billy Idol. He's a genuine badass. And him and his guitar player, who is, his guitar player is one of my big heroes, his name's Steve Stevens. Um, they're New York guys, you know, and in the 80s, like, New York wasn't, it, it was all happening in L.A. I mean, you know, obviously there was always some big shit coming out of New York, but L.A. was the hub, and they came out of New York, and and so me being very interested in their careers and stuff, I learned about, like, you know, CBGBs and these clubs, and then obviously Madonna, she came out of New York, and watching these documentaries. Nile Rodgers and she. Yeah, Nile, like, yeah, exactly, and I just, I, so I really want to go out there and experience that vibe, because I tell you what, I really believe that the vibe of the city you're in or the place that you're at affects the music that you make. And it doesn't dictate it, but it definitely can affect it. Like, I guarantee you, if I took the studio that we're in right now and set this in Pasadena, California, I bet the music... would be a lot different story. I I bet the music I'd make would sound different. You know, I don't know if better or worse, it would just sound different. So I definitely want to go visit those places. But, um, yeah. So, anyway... That's what um, I. That's what I got. Yeah, New York. I liked it there. It, I mean, the cliches about them being, you know, brass or brash. You know, and my stepfather. Loud and stuff, my stepfather. It's true, but I like it. Yeah, see, I like that attitude. Totally right about that. Like my stepfather is from New York, and uh, you know, and I met some people in Nashville that were from New York, and that I mean that stereotype is totally true, but it, to a certain degree, I like that. Because it's it's genuine. Well, it's you got you're seeing you have to go to like people that were born in New York, not these people like these hipsters that have moved there. But you go out like I went to the Bronx and went to the cemetery that my uh, those my great grandparents are buried in. Right. Um, and you know the guy at the de- the front gate, Manny. When I walked up, he's like, "Yo, how you doing?" You know, like right. It was typical real. Goomba accent, you know. And Dude, Joe Cross and other guys. I don't know if anybody listening, um, you know, is into mafia or the mafia history or anything, but I'm a big mafia nerd. And Joe got to go to the place in Manhattan where John Gotti had the boss of the Gambino family, uh, Paul Castellano. John Gotti had him whacked right in front yeah. of the steakhouse and right in the middle of rush hour in downtown Manhattan. John Gotti had him whacked. And it was like the biggest mob hit ever, and that's how John Gotti took over. And Joe got to go see that place. He sent me a picture of it, and it was pretty awesome. Yeah, it was uh, too bad it was like under construction or something. And it was snowing when I was there, I think. Yeah, Sparks Steakhouse. Um, but I walked there. It's in, like I think, the Upper East Side. And that awning is still there, right? This is yeah. Sparks Steakhouse? That's crazy. Wow. Yeah. 
you could talk about the mafia stories dude the mafia like i don't even know where to start on that i've just always been enamored with like i don't even know how to describe it really other than the fact that like it was like this way of life and these guys even though they would kill and not all of them i mean i'm sure some of them were psychopaths right but not all of them were some of them were like actual genuine guys but that was just the code they lived by they didn't murder innocent people like these fucking gangs today like ms-13 it was a code and it was their way of beating the government you know it was their way of taking their piece of the action because let's be real the government is basically a giant organized crime family right now yeah and the mafia was taking money away from them man because the mafia was basically like school of rock says stick it to the man right that's what the mafia was doing and you know obviously i know they had to kill sometimes but it, it was themselves only and not justifying that but every single yeah they didn't go out killing civilians no and every single mafia member when they take the oath when they get made to get in la cosa nostra which is the name for the mafia it's italian for our thing when they take the oath they know what they're signing up for you know the same guy that got whacked you know had to kill his brother-in-law last week you know what i mean like and now they weren't killing each other all the time but, like, you know, it's not one of those things. Like, each of them had to do that. And I've just always been enamored with the, the flawed, um, you know, good people that have flaws. And I'm not justifying or glorifying the mafia. I've just always been interested in that. And, you know, guys like John Gotti, like, for some reason, I kind of admire John Gotti, you know, mm -hmm. in a way. Like, I, you know, like, I want to have a poster of him up in my studio because, first of all, I mean, he looked fucking cool as shit. There, Teflon Don. Dude, there is nobody cooler looking than John Gotti in the, in the late 80s, man. But, you know, and he stuck, he was like, st he stuck his nose at the government and said, fuck you. You know, and you know what? They got him. They had to use RICO, which I think is an unconstitutional bullshit law. Um, and for those of you that don't know, RICO is, um, I think it stands for Racketeering Influence uh, Corrupt Organization or something like that. Basically, it's a law where if it's for organized crime, so gangs or anything like that, where if they can prove that it's a, it's a criminal enterprise, they can charge everybody involved up and down the line with the crime that one person did. So John Gotti got put away for the murder of Paul Castellano, right? Got put away for life for murder. Well, John Gotti never even pulled the trigger, you know? And, right. and, jo and they had no evidence that John Gotti had, you know, like had anything to do with it other than that, you know, I, I think they might've gotten him on tape saying that he ordered it or something, but John Gotti never pulled the trigger or anything and they got found him guilty of his murder. And, and I'm not saying it's not right, you know, but I just feel like it's kind of scary that if the government can prove that, you know, you're involved with an organized crime family, they can charge you with whatever anybody in the family does. Well, what's scarier is they can make up a law that allows them to do what they can't already do. Exactly. Exactly. That's that, scary. That's the only way they were able to bring down the mafia. You know what I mean? And I know this sounds bad, but I think a lot of New Yorkers would agree with me. And I'm not a New Yorker, obviously, but I feel like the streets were safer when the mafia was around than they are now. Definitely. Well, now you don't have anybody to kind of keep the gangs in check. Right. Besides the cops, but that wasn't really helping in the first place. Exactly. Exactly. You know. Did they have much interaction, mafia and, and gangs? Um. Uh, no. I mean, I don't, I, know. I, I don't think they did. I because you know the mafia's deal. I mean, some of them would deal drugs, but uh, the mafia had this policy. Uh, Carlo Gambino started it, but like, if you deal drugs, you die. You know. So if they caught someone dealing drugs, they would whack them because it was such a risky thing to do and to bring heat down on themselves. Um, and so I, I don't think they really dealt with gangs a lot because, you know, gangs are involved with a lot of drug dealing and shit like that. I'm sure to some degree that they were. Yeah, like, I'm thinking territorial. 
Oh, was. I know. Because I'm sure that the you know whatever the gangs were that the were gangs, there, it like had to have laid were, claim to some area. Well, that had to have crossed over with one of the families. Right. What I think, because so, there's five of them in New York, um, and what I think the, of the mafia families, what I think happened is that uh, the gangs just had to kick up to the to the mafia. So the mafia said, "All right, we'll let you have this. You know, this area. This is you. This is your corner. You can sell here, but you're going to kick up to us. You know, and that's what they did." And, you know, I mean, like, and everybody that built a building in New York in the, you know, up until the fucking 90s. Trump. Yeah. I mean, listen, Trump, like, every, the mafia had to okay that job before you, like, the World Trade Center, Trump Tower, because, you know, like, Sammy Gravano, who is John Gotti's underboss, he was in charge of all the cement companies. And so, like, they had, you know, they had to okay those building projects. You know, you had to get the okay from the mafia to build a building in New York in the 80s. And which is pretty interesting, you know, but and a lot of times what they would do, too, is like if there was a job that um, wasn't let's for instance, right, let's say Joe Cross in 1985 wants to build a building in New York City, but he's going to use a cement company that isn't mafia, um, you know, isn't working with the mafia. Well, what the mafia will do since they control the unions is they'll go down there and they'll hold up all the trucks that, that Joe's company that he's having come put the cement down, they'll hold up all the trucks there for days and just keep doing checks on their tire pressure and make sure they're up to union regulations and basically just stall the job out until Joe goes bankrupt or unless he caves and works with the company that the mafia wants him to work with. Wow. Yeah, and that's how they did it. And, uh, you know, and lots of other things, but um, there's a lot of business brilliance that the mafia did that, you know, there's definitely something to be learned what from What was that. that gas tax thing you were talking about? Dude, I don't even know how to explain it, um, but you guys can look it up. But a guy named Michael Franzisi, you should check him out on YouTube. He wrote The Godfather, right? No. The book? No. Sure? No, he didn't. But well, those Mario Puzo might Yeah. So Michael Franzisi was a, he was a capo in uh, one of the crime families. I think it was the Colombo crime family. But he came up, and now he's a good guy. He served his time, never ratted, and now he's like a spokesperson for, you know, fixing your life. But he talks a lot about, um, you know, his life in the mafia. And actually, have you ever watched any Valuetainment interviews? Yeah. Yeah, he does a Valuetainment interview that I think everybody that's listening should check out. But he had this scheme where it was something along the lines of he figured out a way to skim the, the tax money that comes off, like when you go get gas a certain amount of that money that you spend goes to the government and he figured out a scheme to take that to cut that tax off the top from these gas stations and keep it for the mafia and they were literally making like 500 million dollars a year off of this gas tax scheme wow. and they got away with it for like a decade and then finally they caught up to it and uh, shut it down but it's pretty amazing some of the stuff that they could come up with business wise um, but yeah guys Michael Franzisi is his name you need to look him up he has a lot of interesting content Tons of good interviews, you know, really, really, really fascinating stuff. Um, you know, and I also recommend watching The Sopranos. Um, you know, in some ways it's not realistic, but it's one of the most amazing TV shows I've ever seen. So if you're interested in that kind of stuff, that, uh, the movie Casino, obviously Goodfellas, and then a very underrated movie um, called Gotti from 1996. It was an HBO movie, not the new Gotti. The new one with John Travolta is absolute fucking garbage. But the movie Gotti from 1996 is one of my favorite mafia movies ever. Uh, also, Donnie Brasco is another good one. But yeah. I haven't seen any of those. You need to. They're really, 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 really good. Yeah. I uh, I think that stuff's really fascinating. I saw the interview with uh, Sam the Bull. That was really cool. Isn't that awesome? And that yeah. was the first one that he had done since, shit, 97 when he did that interview with Diane Sawyer. But that was, 
The one with Diane Sawyer sucked because it was Diane Sawyer and it was ABC and it was censored and it was just her asking stupid questions. Whereas the one that Sammy the Bull just did when he got out of prison was with Valuetainment. And uh, what's that guy's name? I forgot his name. Me too. Um, David something? Yeah, something like that. But he asked real questions and Sammy gave real answers. And it's like a two hour. It's amazing. I, I remember I literally was counting down the days till that interview came out and I watched it and I watched every minute of it. And he's supposed to have a channel coming too, isn't he? Yeah, I subscribed to it and he hasn't put anything up yet, but I'm interested to see, uh, huh. see what he comes out with because it would be pretty cool. You know, definitely, definitely, definitely. You want to call it? Yeah, I think I'm hot I, as I, fuck. Yeah, I think that was good. It is pretty hot in here. I want to open a window, but well, dude, Joe, thanks for having me on, man. I it was a good one, and hopefully, uh, hopefully, I'll be back. We can do another one here pretty soon.